Alright, welcome to Literary Hangover. I'm Matt Leck. With me, as always, is Alex Guns. Hello. And Grace Jackson. Hello. It's good to speak with you both again. Uh, it's been a, a while. I did the last uh, episode a little bit solo. I, I'm afraid to go back and uh, listen to that one because I'm worried I'm going to sound like Fox Mulder, like um, when Scully's been taken away in season two, and uh, he's kind of losing his mind a little bit and not sleeping. But it's good to have you guys back uh, in tow. Talk about Daniel Boone today. Daniel Boone, who serves as the real world inspiration for a character we've already discussed, and who we will be discussing more, Natty Bumpo from The Pioneers by James Fenimore Cooper, most famously, uh, the most famous book in that series, The Leatherstocking Tales, being The Last of the Mohicans. And we'll go through one of the events famous in his life that served as a plot uh, device in Last of the Mohicans. Uh, But he's also a literary creation himself, not in the way we all are, like we're influenced by books. Boone was a big fan of Gulliver's Travels. He named Loblgrud Creek after uh, the, town, the city of Loblgrud, or however you pronounce it, in Gulliver's Travels, which I actually revisited. And it's like an interesting book. I don't know, do you guys have any Gulliver's Travels uh, hot takes? Hot take on Gulliver's Travels? I will say, like, the first part is really good, and then when it just keeps going to different islands where they're either really small or really big, it is kind of like, yeah, I got, I got it. I got the gist of this. But I got quite the wrong. You know, I, I read it and thought it was like, this is dumb kid shit when I read it in like uh, undergrad. I think there's a lot better satire in it than I kind of expected, uh, which I guess it shouldn't be um, surprising coming from Jonathan Swift, but like some pretty incisive, like, and, and it was actually temporally specific, like Queen Anne gets mentioned, which is like, again, something I, I, I'm a big fan of is uh, looking at things in absolute history. Grace, did you have any uh, Gulliver's Travels? takes before Hot takes. Yeah. Uh, only that the audio version read by david hyde pierce is a delight and yeah. the way he pronounces all of the crazy um you know place names and stuff is just really funny especially yeah. there's that one part where there's like horses that speak right Huminims or whatever yes like the yeah. way he said the way he pronounces that is just so good i also yeah. really enjoyed how kind of like um bawdy and sort of corporeal the language is i was surprised by that um and i think you know it connects to the satirical function of the text as well so it would be cool to discuss that more actually yeah we're, we uh, definitely will um and also you know this filson text uh the adventures of colonel daniel boone uh very influenced by robinson crusoe um it's unclear if that was on boone or on filson himself filson was a, a erudite guy but In addition to being influenced by literature, uh, Daniel Boone, who had like a sort of a a farmer's uh, education, um, he was literally created, the mythology of Daniel Boone was created by this pamphlet. Uh, This pamphlet being, um, again, The Adventures of Colonel Daniel Boone, uh, which was a chapter in a narrative uh, put by John Filson called The Discovery and Settlement of Kentucky. And this narrative, we'll get into it a little bit, but it was basically like we need to attract settlers into Kentucky, this region, uh, right around the American Revolution, and we can make Buco Dolores doing that, and it'll be good for our sort of imperial standing against the natives of uh, French and, sp- uh, and Spanish. So very motivated, um, right? This wasn't just like, hey, let's 
to see a, a good story. Sometimes things aren't related to politics or anything like that. Um, Boone is entirely embedded in politics in a way that wasn't understood by the people who were celebrating him as this guy. So we go to Lord Byron, uh, included Daniel Boone in his poem, Don Juan, uh, or Don Juan, it looks like, but uh, Don Juan is how it's pronounced. I, I bought the Frederick Davidson version of that. He says it Don Juan the entire time through. And it, it, I, sorry, I have, to, I have to get my credit back audible. But so this was, uh, I think, printed a few years after Boone's death. The first cantos were printed in 1819 before Boone died. But I think this um, canto seven here was a few years later. But uh, Lord Byron here. Of all men, saving Scylla, the manslayer, who passes for in life and death most lucky, of the great names which in our faces stare, the General Boone, backwoodsman of Kentucky, was happiest amongst mortals anywhere. For killing nothing but a bear or buck, he enjoyed the lonely, vigorous, harmless days of his old age in wilds of deepest maze. Crime came not near him. She is not the child of solitude. Health shrank not from him, for her home is in the rarely trodden wild, where if men seek her not, and death be more their choice than life, forgive them as beguiled by habit to what their own hearts abhor in cities caged. The present case in point I cite is that Boone lived hunting up to ninety. But what still stranger left behind the name for which men vainly decimate the throng, not only famous, but of that good fame, without which glory is but a tavern song, simple, serene, the antipodes of shame, which hate nor envy e'er could tinge with wrong, an active hermit, even in age the child of nature." Or the man of Ross run wild. Tis true he shrank from men even of his nation when they built up unto his darling trees. He moved some hundred miles off for a station where there were fewer houses and more ease. The inconvenience of civilization is that you neither can be pleased nor please. But where he met the individual man, he showed himself as kind as mortal can. He says that just a line there. Um, crime came not near him. Boone was shaken down regularly uh, by Native Americans on hunts uh, saying, hey, we told you not to like come in Kentucky or towards, uh, you know, this part of North Carolina. Instead of killing you, uh, we're just going to take all the, the first that you've, uh, the Shawnees would often take the first. And Boone would often give it to him because uh, that's acquiescing, uh, as we'll find, is one of the ways that Boone saved himself from getting killed from uh, the Native Americans, uh, unlike so many of the other people in his companies. Before we go any further to this specific Filson text, do you guys have any like general impressions about Boone uh, that you want to share before, you, uh, before we did sort of more in-depth study? Well, I remember like as a kid, Daniel Boone not being like a huge figure. I think Davy Crockett was probably because there was like a Disney movie more recently about him. But those two characters were like interchangeable in my young mind. But my cousin, when I would go to the farm that he lived on, he had a, a coonskin cap. So he got to be Davy Crockett and I would have to be Daniel Boone. 
which always felt like a step down, even though I didn't really even know who he was. Right. Really, that's sorry. Go ahead. No, I think that's fascinating that because I, because agree, like um, there's a hunting society called Boone and Crockett, I think mm-hmm. started by Teddy Roosevelt um, or like that sort of set of people. And, uh, and it celebrates sort of this, this hunting, actually this sort of mythology that we're going to be talking about here, the hunter mythology in America. But it's, I, 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 I agree that I had no idea how to distinguish the two Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone um, before this, uh, the, the very similar sort of place. I had actually never really come across Boone until I started reading more into American literature. Like he's not a particularly well-known figure over here in the UK. Um, But one kind of interesting thread for me is the extent to which, and I think this is a matter of, of some scholarly debate now, the extent to which Daniel Boone may have influenced the development of British romanticism um, and the kind of, interplay between transcendentalism in the US um, in America and and romanticism in in the British context um, and it's kind of interesting to think about the encounter of someone like like Byron or Wordsworth with uh, with a figure like Daniel Boone who really kind of in a way sort of does like transcend the kind of inherent limitations I think of British romanticism in terms of the amount of wilderness that was available to someone like Wordsworth and you know I live in the Lake District at the moment and uh, the Lake District is a very domesticated landscape and was at the time of, of Wordsworth so it's interesting to kind of see Boone as a figure that maybe the British romantics could project some of their kind of fantasies onto and and see how the kind of mythology of the frontier develops in that way. Um, Yeah. In different contexts. I think something also interesting about that pointing out like Boone's life being uh, influencing romantics is it kind of paints a more of like a circuit of influence in the Anglosphere rather than just like an A to B. Like I feel Mm -hmm. like, especially in like literary yeah. If you take like English, English literature, it's often until like mid 19th century that no influence from the, the colonies is going back to England in terms of like style and uh, form and things like that. And this kind of presupposes a little bit like a, a different, uh, more like uh, give and take relationship, which is really interesting. Yeah. And to Richard Slotkin, what Boone represents is a new type of uh, sort of archetype that will help mediate the wilderness and the and with the savages right so previously we've been talking a lot about captivity narratives and like puritan stuff and there it's very like don't go there there be dragons like that's the devil's uh workshop sort of thing and now it's well we actually need to get out there like boone this filson text it doesn't even dwell on like the heroic um events as much as just says like that we faced a lot of adversity, particularly from Native Americans who didn't want us there, the Shawnees, and we survived it all. It's it's like uh, it's kind of like a rise and grind sort of mindset. Like you, you'll you'll need to face um, challenges, and through that you will be sort of uh, well, I guess regenerated and sort of made new again instead of degenerate, which is like what uh filson describes native americans as having basically fallen from possibly even european colonies from the medieval ages before we get to filson let's just uh let's just go through the historical boon a little bit so um 
Boone, the birth of Daniel Boone on October 2nd, 1734. He's the sixth child of Squire and Morgan Dune. They are Quakers in uh, near Reading, Pennsylvania. And they have cl- uh, relationships, trading and hunting relationships with the Native Americans there, Shawnees and Delawares, I believe. Daniel was uh, just was born just two years after George Washington and nine years before Thomas Jefferson. Uh, so that's interesting. Um, Daniel Boone or Rebecca Boone, his wife, who we'll also talk about more in the next time, because I think Rebecca Boone, uh, there's she should be as uh, to the extent that like she's just as important as Daniel, particularly in like Daniel's life. The amount of sacrifice, the amount of frankly like just practical frontier um, knowledge and capability she had. There's uh, Annette Kalodny, uh, I think I haven't read this book, but uh, I've seen it cited a couple of times. Goes into her. Uh, significance quite a lot, and I think she is really undersold in um, in, in Boone Boone narrative, um, particularly the well. I don't want to get into, too, but but like this mythical thing where Boone almost the story where Boone almost shoots her as a deer, um, which is very silly. But again, we won't. That's not in this uh, text. So, uh, seventeen forty eight, the Boone's about fourteen. The grandparents of Rebecca Brian Morgan Brian. Um, so Re- Rebecca um, Boone's fa- um, family, they moved to the Shenandoah of Virginia to the backwoods of uh, North Carolina. Eventually, uh, Boone's family would follow. Now, where it gets interesting uh, with Daniel Boone's uh, history is in 1755, Boone served as a teamster driving supplies by wagon for the North Carolina militia. North Carolina Governor Arthur Dobbs' son, Edward Bryce Dobbs, led the unit of militia in support of General Edward Braddock's unsuccessful attempt to take Fort Duquesne from the French. The fort was located at present Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Now, Braddock's defeat is a very interesting uh, sort of thing. Uh, Very, I guess, typical. Um, You might suspect me of making up some of these quotes if you didn't know that they were actually, uh, if we we didn't play them from an audio book here. Um, So I'm going to play a section from Morgan's uh, book here um, on who uh, Braddock was and uh, a little bit, I think this is the word hubris. Uh, I don't know if it's overused, but it's uh, definitely applies here. In 1755, the British sent General Edward Braddock to North America to assemble an army of British regulars and militia to drive the French out of Fort Duquesne and the western lands. Braddock had a considerable reputation as a military man, and he was confident he could expel the Indians and French trespassers. While in Philadelphia gathering his forces, he told Benjamin Franklin he was sure he could defeat the enemy in two or three days. Franklin warned him that Indians had their own way of fighting in the American backwoods, But Franklin later reported that Braddock smiled at my ignorance and replied, These savages may indeed be a formidable enemy to your raw American militia, but upon the king's regular and disciplined troops, sir, it is impossible they should make any impression. On the troops, sir, it is impossible that they would make any impression. That's what I'm imagining uh, Braddock to sound like. Yeah, it's something. It's a good thing that modern empires don't have that problem anymore, where they just go into a country without knowing anything about the people and then just get their ass beat immediately. Right, exactly. We definitely learned the lesson that a technological and sort of training advantage uh, will definitely carry the day every time. Um, so, or so more than two thousand men was embodied or brought together 
from several colonies in June 1755 at Fort Cumberland in western Maryland. Major Edward Dobbs, son of the governor of North Carolina, brought a company from the western part of that colony, including Daniel Boone, who had joined as a teamster and blacksmith. Many people who would become important later were involved in the expedition to drive the French from Fort Duquesne. Daniel Morgan of Winchester, Virginia, who would later distinguish himself in the revolution at the battles of Saratoga and Calpins, was there as a teamster for Washington's militia, which would support Braddock's army of regular soldiers. Now, we've talked about this before because uh, the term teamster is brought up in the pioneers. Um, notice uh, Natty is not a teamster in it, but there are other teamsters in it. Um, but it, it, I, I, anybody who knows more about this history, because these, these workers are, I think, in terms of uh, empire, as significant as, as any there are, right? Like, who is carrying Custer's shit? to fucking Dakota, right? Like, like that stuff couldn't, these sorts of army campaigns, like we know, like, and I, I think like Napoleon was probably sort of like big in these sorts of um, uh, supply line sort of um, workers and getting, getting shit from point A to point E point B, but it's so interesting. And I, I wonder how that move from, you know, these sorts of workers to, you know, the teamsters we know today I'm, I'm just curious how that developed because um, it is it, it's the most interesting thing to me in the pioneers definitely and it's one of the more interesting things to learn about daniel boone is that that was his job um and that uh i don't know if they mentioned it in this we'll keep playing it but he might have became a, a freemason either here or at a later um sort of military engagement um a freemason um and uh and yeah we'll, i'll just continue a little bit more with this go ahead well, yeah, I think a little, like, just a little bit more on that. The, the Teamsters, and then uh, there's kind of an overlap with, like, military scouts in American history. And these people weren't necessarily uh, in the military proper. They would be civilians that would happen to wear military dress. But often, you know, if these people are guiding uh, U.S. troops into what would be, like, Native American territory, they would often dress like Native Americans have, like, like if we think of uh, – Buffalo Bill Cody or Wild Bill, like those like famous now like cowboys, they all have long hair and they wear um, buckskin, for example. Mm. And they're both scouts and teamsters. And these are the kind of people that can speak to the military and their needs, but they can get there first because they also can speak um, the like the language of the terrain that they need to go to and have like good relationships with Native Americans. And I think Daniel Boone is kind of the first person to to not that he actively did it, but he's the person where all these kind of threads can go through one person, you know, where it's like, I am this, like, I am the person who's civilization when I'm in the wilderness and I'm wilderness when I'm in civilization. I can like, he can, he's a uh, citizen yeah. of like these, of these two continents that don't touch yet. And you know, that, that reminds me like, not only is does the teamsters connection make uh, a sort of direct line to um, Natty Bumpo, but the Spy, James Fenimore Cooper's first novel, uh, The Spy, which is this character, I forget what his name is, but he's this guy, nobody quite sure if they can trust because he can be sort of anywhere, like you say, that sort of like yeah. uh, doing reconnaissance for ultimately find out in The Spy, George Washington. Um, and and Boone is very much that sort of figure. So he, he gets this, uh, he, he gets these, these connections as his teamster uh, at Braddock's defeat. But he eventually becomes sort of an agent for these powerful men. It may have been at this time that Boone was initiated as a Freemason. All right. 
Masonry was popular in Virginia, and Washington and many of the other officers of the militia were devoted Masons. Washington had been initiated November 4, 1752, at the lodge in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and Boone may have joined there also in 1755. During the later Revolutionary period, Washington would encourage the establishment of military lodges among his army. Masonry served as a bulwark against monarchy and feudalism, Roman Catholicism, and the emotional extremes of some Protestant sects, and offered a way to put in practice new ideas of fraternity, progress, rational thought. Thomas Gage, who would later serve as commander-in-chief of British forces in North America, was with Braddock as a young officer. Horatio Gates, who would later serve as a general with American forces in the Revolution, was also in the brigade. Dr. Thomas Walker, perhaps the first Englishman to find the gap called Wasiota, which he renamed for the Duke of Cumberland, served as commissary for Braddock's army. Among the men was a young trader named John Findlay, who had gone down the Ohio to trade with Shawnees in Kentucky in 1752. He had seen the great meadows and the cane lands there, and he described them to young Boone. Braddock's campaign seemed to be under a curse from the beginning. Moving clumsily through the forest with artillery and a long baggage train, in terrain fit only for pack horses, not wheeled vehicles, it took the column a week to travel the first thirty miles. Braddock was neither the first nor the last general trained in European warfare to be baffled by the obstacles and cover provided by the American woods. On July 9, 1755, Braddock's army crossed the Monongahela, and marching to fife and drum, followed by many pieces of artillery, proceeded toward Fort Duquesne for a bombardment and siege. Suddenly the path ahead was blocked by French Canadians, and the woods on either side erupted with rifle fire. Bullets tore into the red and blue uniformed soldiers. Hit by fire from both sides and the front, Braddock's force was helpless. It was an ambush that could have been avoided had Braddock used Indian scouts ahead and on either flank. A Delaware chief named Shingus had offered scouts if Braddock would assure him the Ohio Valley would not be settled by the English. Braddock had answered, No savage should inherit the land, and said that, besides, he did not need their help. So, I mean, I think that quote right there is always, I remember that years ago coming across that, like, no savages will inherit this land. Like, I don't care if I'm putting all of these other guys at risk. Um, and it, it's clearly like best practices to be using people like, like spies that know the terrain, like that's good for war. Um, no savages will inherit the land that, by the way, like, they were already on, um, but as there's an elaboration of like where um, sort of royal policy or like a certain type of like um, a military guy in the, in the British Empire, the way he thought about like what this land was and who it was for, that's very interesting to me. Um, well, and the fact that this this instigates the entire like seven years war for the most part. I mean, it was probably something like there these two settlements of French and and British uh, colonies are probably going to clash at some point, but it's, I think it's important to highlight that uh, the British, including a young George Washington, just went completely ass backwards into it uh, and like didn't give a damn what was going to happen. That's just, that's like essentially what kicked it off. Because they wanted the land, yeah. <laughs> you know, they all had their eyes on Kentucky and Ohio um, basically. 
Yeah, well, uh, there's a little bit more from Morgan here, and then we'll play a little bit from Farringer. With no vedettes or flanking scouts, Braddock had marched into a death trap. It was reported later that the militiamen behaved better than the British soldiers once the attack began, perhaps because they were more familiar with woodland fighting. The soldiers panicked and began firing wildly, killing their own men. Entire companies were wiped out by friendly fire from British muskets. As Washington described it later, they, militiamen, behaved like men and died like soldiers, while the regulars broke and run as sheep before hounds. Many years later, Nathan Boone said his father blamed Braddock for not using spies and guards on his flanks. As a teamster, Boone was with the baggage train to the rear. As the surviving soldiers began to retreat, shoving and leaping over each other in a rout, the teamsters were trapped in the melee. The French and Indians rushed to take prisoners, and the teamsters, unarmed and responsible for the heavy baggage wagons, were helpless as wounded and frightened soldiers stumbled back past them. To save himself, young Boone cut his horses loose and rode after the fleeing troops. So yeah, that's Boone's experience with uh, with Braddock's defeat. There, um, I was thinking I, I, of that that Washington quote where he's saying like that, and we were just when I think I was reading this biography, we were just doing William Byrd as well, and I was like, when hearing George Washington, like his analysis of by any accounts an embarrassing encounter, being like, well, they they fought like men and some ran away. It's like, man, this could be William Byrd's diary. Like, what a conceited asshole. Yeah. Particularly like the this the um his stuff at Fort Necessity uh years earlier where he's talking about like the whiz of bullets through the air. Like G- George Washington was a fucking psycho. <laughs> like yeah. full on freak. Um now here's a little bit from uh Story in John MacFarriger on Daniel Boone, um, the life and the legend of an American pioneer. This one came out in '92, but I like this section uh, on uh, Daniel Boone hearing about Kentucky for the first time at General Baddock's defeat because um, the the myth that Boone would sort of spread to everybody to see it get spread to Boone and sort of like uh, inseminated in a way almost into Boone by, um, um, during, by folks at this hunting or this uh, war camp is very, I think, fascinating. Boone told his children that he first heard of Kantake while serving with Braddock's army in 1755. The lands west of the mountains were a frequent topic around evening campfires, for the men understood that the fight in which they were engaged for control of the Ohio Forks was but a preliminary round in a much longer struggle over the future of the Ohio and Kentucky countries, the northern and southern banks of the river. Boone's informant was John Findlay, another of Braddock's teamsters, who recently had returned from a trading expedition to the Blue Lick town. Born in Ireland in 1722, Findlay came to America with his parents, grew up near Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and like Boone, learned the language and the customs of the Delawares and Shawnees. He entered the Indian trade and by the late 1740s was operating at the Forks of the Ohio. In the fall of 1752, he and four assistants took a canoe loaded with English goods down the Ohio. Meeting a party of Shawnee hunters who invited them to trade at Blue Lick Town, Findlay and his men turned south at the mouth of the Kentucky River and after many days of hard rowing arrived at the community where they found a number of other Pennsylvania traders already in place. The furs and skins brought in by the Indian hunters were of excellent quality, and business was good until midwinter, when an invading party of French and Canadian Indians swept down from the north, killing three of Findlay's men and carrying six other traders, along with hundreds of pounds of goods and peltry, off to Montreal. 
Findlay and one assistant managed to escape, and they safely reached the forks of the Ohio by June. This raid and the subsequent turmoil between the French and English in the Ohio region, preceding the Seven Years' War, persuaded the residents of Blue Lick Town to abandon the site, and they joined their strength to the larger Shawnee towns on the Ohio. Indian trader John Findlay was the first of a long line of Kentucky promoters and boosters. Kantake, he told Boone, was a land of cane and clover, and in its fertile valleys a man might lay claim to land enough for sons and grandsons, and a great speck besides. The wild game was beyond imagining, with great profits for hunters, trappers, and traders. Why, the current at the falls of the Ohio was so strong, he claimed, that fat ducks and geese were swept over and dashed against the rocks, and a man had only to pick up as many as he wanted. These tall tales... That is my favorite type of American writing. And it's funny, like, Daniel Boone's last name has a little bit of a double meaning of, like, a Boone, like, a, look at this, all this great stuff I found, right? Yeah. But that thing of there's so much abundance here that ducks are literally killing themselves over waterfalls um and you can just go grab like a drumstick like that that and you see that in um what is it uh sleepy hollow uh ichabod crane like how much he's eating right like that sort of thing like that that it's something i don't i wonder if that's still i guess that i don't know if that idea has been lost or if it's been like made into like advertising like you know you look at like um uh like the abundance you see on supermarket shelves or in advertising maybe that's like where we're at now with it but that that is very fascinating to me the early versions of that Els anticipated john filson's more grandiloquent kentucky the land of promise flowing with milk and honey where you shall eat bread without scarceness and not lack anything exaggeration seemed to come with a country no stranger there's no place on the universal earth like old king tuck a later pioneer would declare. She whips all out west in prettiness, and you might bile down creation and not get such another. What a buzzle is amongst people about Kentuck, wrote a Virginia minister during the early 1770s. To hear people speak of it, one would think it was a newfound paradise. The most sublime Edenic comparison came in the sermon of a frontier preacher who, wishing to convey to his congregation the glories of the afterlife, sang, Oh, my dear honeys, heaven is a Kentucky of a place. Sixty-five years after first stirring to these tales, Findlay's descriptions remained vivid for old Boone, who told a friend that the Irishman had painted so charming a description of Kentucky, the falls of the Ohio, and wild game, that it once fired his imagination, and so completely promised to fulfill his romantic desires, he resolved to visit the country. Boone made his first attempt to reach... Yeah, so uh, I, I, that's just interesting to me, how Boone sort of gets uh, inflamed by this, this exact idea, this promised land, this sort of Eden uh place um and, and and like to literally hear preachers compare it with heaven um favorably is funny i think something kind of worth highlighting i you know we've probably brought it up at least once here but it's kentucky is on the other side of the appalachian mountain range and i think that just to kind of get that context of like the colonial project is you know it's like churning along at this point in the mid 18th century and it's it's hitting up slightly against this massive mountain range and the cumberland gap which is what Daniel Boone finds his, you know, his way through is the way that the British at that point colonial project can enter deeply into the uh, uh, American West. Like you could almost say that, like, I think there's an argument to be made that this like movement into Kentucky and into the Ohio River Valley is just as important to like American identity as like the Revolutionary War, basically. Yeah, well, I think it's it's almost like one in the same with it, like because it is. Uh, it, so, like you said, Braddock's uh, defeat, um, that stuff leads to the Seven Years' War, 
Um, ultimately, the defeat of the French and Indians and that opens up a lot for more settlement. And the British government, all of a sudden, like, so there's there's multiple things stopping settlements from encroaching there's like you said like the physical geographic stuff with the mountains there's the don't want to get killed by shawnees um, or cherokees uh and there's don't want to get killed by you know imperial powers like france and those things are starting to the like you said like at this point especially after braddock's defeat and um basically when daniel's starting to get um have his kids um that's when all those barriers are starting to fall and once he's had them then it's wide open for him to go basically exploit it so yeah just to go a little bit into um so 1755 that was braddock's defeat 1756 he marries rebecca bryan um they have kids the next couple years um he's also in 1769 helps uh lead one of these expeditions that wouldn't get into Kentucky, but like on the way to Kentucky. And it's here that he is told by, so yeah, in 1769, he's um, Daniel and his brother-in-law, John Stewart uh, were captured twice by Indians being set free the first time. Now they had set out to blaze the first known trail from North Carolina into Eastern Tennessee uh, on their way to Kentucky with five other men, including John Stewart, a hunt and explore Kentucky. Now on this he was this like he said he was captured a couple times by Shawnees. The Shawnees, led by a chief who called himself Captain Will Emery, um, they used uh, anglicized names. Told Boone, "This is Indians' hunting ground regarding Kentucky, and all the animals, skins, and furs are ours. If you are so foolish as to venture here again, you may be sure the wasp and yellow jackets will sting you severely." Uh, and in fact, Boone would end up uh, losing two of those sons in Indian fights. Um, and he became sort of known as a Indian fighter himself, because I mean, a lot of these battles, I just want to share this um, bar relief as over the, in their capital rotunda here um, to kind of show the popular, this is how Boone is understood, right? He's, oh, wow. he's holding a, a gun in between as a, as a, uh, Scary Savage tries to club him with a tomahawk there. And when it, was that taken out? I, I think it, that's what it says it was taken out, but it won't, doesn't say on AOS uh, architecture of the capital.gov that it was taken out. It just says it was its location is above the south door of the Capitol Rotunda. Um, oh, so one it of, is. One of the books, really- I think, God. one of the books we said, I think said it was moved, right? But um, no, yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm not it's sure. It's interesting that he's like, physically smaller than the the indian in that yeah 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 yeah, exactly and protecting somebody underneath too um and that's a very um it's an interesting paradox for boone's to sort of be understood as this indian killer indian hater he uh admitted to and it's 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 ambiguous regards to the stories of what's what was what's a tall tale versus what's true um, but he definitely like fought in battles against like Shawnees particularly and uh, and almost or like possibly confessed to just killing some on like his expeditions. Um, one uh, just randomly said like fell into the water and it's unclear if this was a joke or if he actually killed him. Um, and it's it's interesting because 
in the in totality of Boone's legacy, I think definitely like Indian killer um, because of you lead hundreds of thousands of people into Kentucky. That's ultimately like you're you have some sort of responsiveness to that violence. Him as an individual person, uh, he was more apt to uh, accede to the demands of any sort of uh, Indian party that had captured them. Um, he was the one they natives would always want to talk to and parlay with because they trusted him more than the others nonetheless it is true that like like that's the paradox of this right like by by being more sort of interpersonally agreeable he was actually able to do even more harm and, and harm that he understood like he understood that him leading people into these settlements was ruining the Indians way of life because it also ruined his because once they followed the hunting would go for him too. And he'd have to F out, F up out of there. So that's the central paradox that's missing ultimately from the Filson text, because Filson's text wants to be like, this is the best thing in the world, right? Let's get people here and, and all your problems will be solved. It's a tension that I don't know if you ever see, if he really realizes that what's occurring or if like that, it's just a natural, maybe he has more faith in like this, like civ, quote unquote civilizing project, but you can see it in his own lifetime, how it ruins this like liminal space between. I think, I think he British. does. He is aware of it though. I, I think in, in the Morgan biography, there's quite a lot of material that suggests he was highly aware of how, how much like the game was being depleted by yeah. um, this kind of constant movement into, into Indian territory. And, just in his own kind of hunting experience, I think he, he actually had a first-hand experience of that mm. stuff drying up. And it's amazing to think that, like, all of that happened, you know, within his lifetime, partly because of him, but just going back to that first, uh, the first time he heard about Kentucky as this land of, what is it, land of cane and clover, with, you know, just so much abundance and plenty um that just within a few decades it would be it would be depleted yeah, yeah. We, we we will get into the, his bitterness he he basically says i never want to come back to kentucky again <laughs> and because like what ultimately happened was yeah you have that first round of uh of settlement including uh the for most famously the ancestors of abraham lincoln um but ultimately like the you get the settlements and like the low farmers but he, by the time he he had to like f off to um uh spanish missouri to avoid debtors um it's all it was all taken over by uh uh hemp farmers which used slave labor intensively and also boone himself used slave labor too he wasn't like um uh innocent by that by any stretch but yeah well we'll get into like his bitterness and i think yeah he was pretty conscious of like I'm never going back there. And uh, he also said, uh, he very famously has this quote. While I could never with safety repose confidence in a Yankee, I never have been deceived by an Indian. And so he says that as a guy who we'll see in this Filson text got shook down by the native Americans all the time. Right. (laughs) But that's that, to him was part of the fairness of it, right? Like ultimately you're encroaching onto this land. That's like the, that's the game you're playing. Uh, like you get out of there with your life, be happy with that. Uh, like you don't also get the 60 bear uh, pelts that you've been carrying around. Um, I think he so- must've also been like hyper conscious of um, his own kind of privileged position as someone who could mediate between 
the settlers and the Indians. Um, and I imagine he probably felt a degree of kind of protectiveness, not only like over them, but over his own kind of expertise, you know, because that's like at the end of the day, that's how he made what little money he made. <laughs> that's how he made his name. And that was like his whole livelihood was invested in his ability to be, to have one foot in both worlds, to be a kind of diplomat, spies, you know, type figure. Yeah. Um, it's just interesting how much kind of ambivalence that generates for him throughout his life. Well, yeah, this will, this ultimately gets him in trouble because people don't know if he's on the side of the Shawnees. He gets captured by them and gets adopted and becomes very close friends with the chief. And he ultimately escapes, but they're like, they, they don't quite trust him because they like, they don't know, like this is during the revolution. Are you, are you right. just surrendering over to the Brits and their allies and yeah. Native Americans? Well, it doesn't um, help when the chief refers to him as his son. Right, <laughs> like, exactly. When they're fighting, he's like, if, if I was like a, a fellow soldier, I'd be like, what's up? What did he just call you? Yeah. And lets him go uh, hunting by himself. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I want to continue a little bit with John MacFarriger, actually kind of on that, like on who's right. Cause there's this idea of Daniel Boone. He just like, he wants to get away from the city and like the, all these people and just live free with God. Um, but ultimately like we see that, no, he wasn't, he was, that this shit was underwritten. Um, John MacFarriger has got this uh, uh, section here on Richard Henderson. So um Boone hears about Kentucky. He's the get. He needs to get there somewhere, and that's a big expense. Who's going to underwrite this? And there's been a lot of uh, debunking of Boone that he was simply an, a, basically a land agent um, uh, commissioned by this guy Richard Henderson. Because, like we said, um, the ending of the uh, French Indian Seven Years' War uh, opened up those lands, and all and they were promised to veterans of those wars but uh a lot of these sort of like land speculators were like hey if we get people there they're not going to like tell us to leave it's like three card monty that that the colonial and the early american nation is constantly doing where it's like okay we have this treaty with like native americans there so we can't go there and so as like a government we're not going to go there and then they like you know wink wink nudge nudge people who are close or connected to like people in power just set out in these like independent expeditions there and then they set up camp there and they start making this town. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, Thomas Jefferson was really good at this being like, well, like if we don't like, like intermediate or uh, mediate this transaction, they could get really violent. So we're going to have to take this territory that's already being claimed. And that's constant. Like it goes all the way up to like the Black Hills and like the like late 19th century of like, oh, well, all these people just went up there on their own. So we should probably send in the military to make sure nothing bad <laughs> uh, happens. A little bit, uh, there's some maybe more modern examples too uh, over in the Middle East that we could uh, uh, yeah. name. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, and Richard Henderson, like he's, a, he's this guy who's, um, uh, well, uh, let's play this Farager thing before we uh, react a little bit more to this. Um, I'll, I'm going to include this part on the regulators in North Carolina um, just to show a little bit of the uh, sort of poli- political ferment that was going on that uh maybe the boone wanted to leave behind that also maybe uh rebecca boone's family was involved in in the context of a life enmeshed in relationships of extended family considerations such as these must have had a powerful effect on boone social developments in north carolina also played a role in boone's thinking 
Farmers of the backcountry shared a growing anger at their underrepresentation in the provincial assembly, their lack of control over local affairs, and the fees and taxes levied without their consent. And during the 1760s, a series of local protests and uprisings shook the colony. By 1768, angry men calling themselves regulators were condemning merchants and damned lawyers who practiced numberless devilish devices to rob you of your livings. In Hillsborough, regulators stormed the court, beat officials, including Sheriff Thomas Hart, and burned the house and barn of Justice Richard Henderson. The regulators took over the court and dismissed all charges and suits against their number. The revolt ended at the Battle of Al- Remember, burned uh, Richard Henderson's barn. Alamance River in May 1771, when forces from the eastern counties defeated the regulators in a bloody rout, after which six regulator leaders were hanged. In Rowan County, where the majority of the population supported the regulators, many Bryan kinsmen were active in the movement, and afterward they were required to take an oath of allegiance. The Boones seemed to have steered clear of the controversy, and the upper Yadkin Valley was far removed from the scene of the disturbances, but Boone could not avoid the implication of the episode. The early phase of development was closing rapidly, with initiative passing from the frontiersmen to the damned lawyers. Through his own business and legal affairs, Boone was associated with several of the gentlemen roughed up and deposed during the revolt. Before his appointment to the Superior Court, Richard Henderson, as an attorney on the circuit, had argued cases before Boone's father at the Rowan County Courthouse and may have become acquainted with Daniel. In association with his law partner John Williams, with Sheriff Thomas Hart and his merchant brother Nathaniel Hart, Henderson pursued business interests and investments, real estate prominent among them. The Harts had a branch store in Salisbury where Boone traded, and in their legal and business relations with Boone and other hunters, these gentlemen paid close attention to talk of the western country. The growing population of land-hungry farmers and the rising price of land made real estate the most popular enterprise of the day, one pursued by such notable Americans as George Washington and Patrick Henry. Next to the law, wrote one colonial attorney, the best branch of business in America is that of adventuring in lands and procuring inhabitants to settle them. Among biographers, there has been a good deal of debate about when Boone entered into a business relationship with Richard Henderson. There have been suspicions that Henderson and his associates financed Boone's extended hunting expeditions across the mountains in exchange for intelligence. This was the practice of other speculators, such as George Washington, for example, who wrote his agent in the Ohio country to proceed under the guise of hunting game. <laughs> because successful speculation depended on inside information, men kept such arrangements quiet, and as a result one would expect supporting evidence for an early relationship between Henderson and Boone to be woefully thin. An old Appalachian hunter once told the story that he had been with a group of hunters in the Tennessee mountains in the year 1764 when they were overtaken by Boone, who told them he wished to be informed of the geography and locography of these woods, saying that he was employed to explore them by Henderson and Company. But Henderson and Company was not organized until the early 1770s, and Nathan Boone, generally the most reliable informant on his father's life, believed that Boone was not in Henderson's employ until 1774, a point made by other Boone descendants as well. Boone had reasons of his own for going to Kentucky, they argued, and did not act for others on his first explorations. The land schemes of Henderson and Company began in earnest in 1774, yet in 1773 Boone would help to plan and conduct a movement of 60 or 70 settlers, including his own family and kinsmen, across the mountains. Clearly he did have sufficient motive to act on his own. Those who argue for Boone's employment by Henderson suggest that the relationship between the two may have originated in Henderson's defense of Boone's numerous lawsuits. But the fact is that most of Boone's legal troubles at the time were initiated by Richard Henderson himself. In 1768, Henderson and his partner John Williams filed suit against Boone in Rowan County Court for the collection of a debt for 20 pounds. The case was continued a number of times during the next few terms of the court with the notation, Conditions Performed, language that generally indicated that the debtor was paying the usurious interest charges, if not the principal. But finally, in the spring of 1770, after Boone had left to hunt in Kentucky, the case came to trial, a jury decided in favor of the plaintiffs, and Henderson had a warrant issued for Boone's arrest. This would have been an odd course to pursue had Henderson been the very man who had sent Boone to explore the West. 
Still, the suspicion lingers that Boone's two full years in Kentucky were occupied with more than hunting and scouting potential locations for himself and his kinsmen alone. As Kentucky historian Thomas Clark put it, he wasn't just bird counting. A trip of that length required ample supplies of guns, ammunition, traps, horses, and other supplies, and Henderson and his associates may have supplied credit in the anticipation of information. Filson had Boone reconnoitering and stated that after the trip, Henderson was informed of this country by Colonel Boone. A financial connection of some sort between the two is certainly plausible, but this would not have made Boone merely Henderson's land agent. Nathaniel Hart, Jr., descendant of the Hart brothers, said that on Boone's return he gave a description of the country to many gentlemen in North Carolina, my father, Captain Nathaniel Hart, amongst the rest. Boone's account so delighted these gentlemen, Hart wrote, that several of them associated themselves together under the name of Richard Henderson and Company. Rather than Boone playing a part in a drama scripted by Richard Henderson, Hart's account suggests that things happened the other way around. As he put it, now, that's a, I think um, Morgan has a, um, a interesting, uh, the, an interpretation of that that's more along with mine, which is that if Boone owes this guy money, uh, like whether, I think like motive becomes kind of hard to disentangle, right? Like maybe he wouldn't have sent him out in 69 if he's going to sue him later. But he's also like, if somebody owes you something, what can they give you that's valuable back? It's it's very clear like that the sort of relationship is is going to be some there's some sort of um, uh, obligation I think financial obligation underwriting this a little bit. Yeah, um, at least, or I mean, <clears throat> or even like more of a kind of protection racket model where he's yeah. like he actually has to go and work for him. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. This early dark money. <laughs> exactly right like even daniel boone this guy who's supposed to be this free of all civilizations trappings right is actually like constantly in fucking court uh and has his basic basically like what so even if like he saw this had this idea of kentucky in his head and just wanted to explore it for his family he can't do that he actually had to do it for the money men yeah yeah Sorry. I think the dark money thing is a great point. And it's, I was reading a lot of like, uh, like parapolitics stuff, this pandemic. And I, uh, maybe it's just like making connections from just reading to me things, but reading a lot of like frontier policy, and it's like, oh, you can draw a straight line in terms of like best practices to how independent moneyed interests that had liminal connections to some type of governing body sending quasi scouts to pretend to be hunting in some area for reconnaissance for information or or to take over it's like that basically is like a cia playbook uh only yeah, mayor, pete. <laughs> <What's that? laughs> mayor pete mayor <laughs> pete yeah exactly yeah yeah mayor pete's like a new daniel boone <laughs> the afghanistan uh, uh yeah. minerals map um, it is funny yeah. though i feel like this is another sort of source of ambivalence in the boone story it's like does there's so much about how Boone like loves the wilderness, how he was at home in the wilderness. He loved to go hunting for months on end alone and just like fend for himself. That's a huge part of the myth, right? But you sort of, the more you learn about his biography and all of his financial troubles, you're wondering like, did he really love the wilderness or did he just hate the city and like hate <laughs> the sort of, <laughs> was he running from his debts the whole, the whole time? You know, it's probably yeah. both. Well, I think like there's a there's a story early in his life where his, he goes on his first long hunt with this guy and they get all these like bear hides and they take it and sell it all in Philadelphia and they go on a two week bender with all of the money that they got. And I think like that part 
I think did appeal to him a little bit, right? And and even in even in the Filson text, he has to sort of apologize for like why he's gone from his wife so long. But he also hints that there might be some sort of marital trouble uh, going on there, probably from like trying to drag her all across from like, you know, uh, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, to Florida, to Kentucky, to um, West Virginia. Um, yeah. So, um, so that, that, that's, that's the late sixties, this sort of ambivalent, ambiguous connection to Henderson and company who uh, is there's like uh, colonial writings at the time, of administrators wondering if Henderson lost his mind think because he was so aggressive with trying to uh, colonize these lands. Um, fast forward a little bit to, uh, so, I, so let's just uh, break down this uh, 1907 or 1770. John Stewart uh, disappears while hunting five years later, his body is found in a hollow tree where he had hid uh, after being shot by Indians. Uh, Daniel's brother, Squire, I've in Kentucky. Um, Squire had brought ammunition, other spots. So this is where we're starting to get into the Philson text a little bit. Um, so he died in battle. And they put him in the tree. Is that right? Is that what happened? I, Which no, is- I think so. He got he got sort of lost, and then I think shot and hid in a tree, and that's where oh, the body was left. Um, but so to go on, what you're talking about with the imperial designs on lands and stuff like that in 1774. Uh, or 1773, Daniel's friends, including Colonel William Russell, made the first attempt to settle Kentucky. Indians attacked part of the party, killing Boone's son James and five other men. That's mentioned in Filson's text. Uh, as a result, they uh, returned. 1774 is Lord Dunmore's war. It broke out in, at the Battle of Point Pleasant. Daniel was commissioned lieutenant and then captain and put in charge of three forts along the Clinch River in southwest Virginia. John Murray, 4th Earl of Dunmore. I want to show you uh, Earl of Dunmore. This is another guy. Let's talk like this. I love the like very upper crust British. Uh, oh, he's going to be a gammon, isn't he? Um, he's going to be what? A gammon. That's what we call them. <laughs> a sort of red faced, gouty complexion. <laughs> well, yeah, here he is. Uh, a man who could destroy the billiard room. <laughs> Oh, yes. Oh, beautiful. Patrician. Is that what you call a unit over there? (laughs) Um. (laughs) So, John Murray, 4th Earl of Dunmore, the last colonial governor, I shouldn't say colonel, (laughs) that's a bad, uh, 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 last colonial governor of Virginia, Land hungry, he conspired with Washington uh, and Patrick Henry to get those lands that were promised by to the uh, vets. Uh, he had the eyes on the West Lands promised to seven years war vets uh, invested, but he was also there for the crown and had to play both roles of like, I want to monetize this and get my own, you know, beak wet. And I also have to stop these people from settling these lands. Ultimately, he had to uh, break, he ultimately broke with the crown, which pissed off the Virginians like Washington and Henry that were like, hey, bro, you're supposed to be with us. And they end up calling him, um, you know, big trader. Uh, now, that upset them a little bit. What really upset them is during the uh, American Revolution, he offered freedom to any indentured or enslaved persons who fought with the British uh, forces, which 
Uh, yeah, that that upset old George and uh, Patrick Henry quite a bit. Uh, and uh, anyway, he he starts Lord Dunmore's War. Uh, this is the last colonial war before uh, independence, and it's basically a thinly veiled way to expand. In, and uh, the Shawnees had attacked a couple settlements. They used it as pretext to project force. Um, and uh, I think that's probably good. Like, like I said, Daniel had a role in, in fighting that um, and where he, that's where he became colonel. All right. So before we uh, listen to this uh, section on Boone from Filson, I think it, I want to just play this extended section from Regeneration Through Violence by Richard Slotkin on Filson to kind of pl- to kind of set the table a little bit and put it in the context, uh, the archetypal context that Slotkin sees this in. Uh, so here's a little bit. It's a little bit on the um, biography of uh, Filson and uh and a little bit on the text itself in 1784 john filson a schoolmaster turned surveyor and land speculator returned from two years in kentucky in wilmington the metropolis of his home state of delaware he published the discovery settlement and present state of kentucky an elaborate real estate promotion brochure designed to sell farmlands in the dark and bloody ground to easterners and europeans sales resistance was likely to be high the revolution had just ended and the bloody indian wars which had decimated the kentucky settlements were still sputtering out in petty raids and secret murders Thus Filson faced the classic problem of writers about the frontier since Underhill's time, how to portray the promise of the frontier without destroying his own credibility by glossing over the obviously perilous realities of the pioneer's situation. Filson attempted to persuade his audience by composing, as an appendix to that book, a literary dramatization of a hero's immersion in the elemental violence of the wilderness and his consequent emergence as the founder of a nascent imperial republic. In The Adventures of C.O.L. Daniel Boone Filson created a character who was to become the archetypal hero of the American frontier, copied by imitators and plagiarists and appearing innumerable times under other names and in other guises, in literature, the popular arts, and folklore, as the man who made the wilderness safe for democracy. The Boone narrative, in fact, constituted the first nationally viable statement of a myth of the frontier. The details of Filson's life before 1784 are shadowy and vague. Even the date of his birth is uncertain, although his most recent biographer, John Walton, estimates it as 1753. He was a schoolmaster in Brandywine, Pennsylvania, and apparently spent the years of the revolution in his schoolroom, since no record of military service by him has come to light. Other details of his background can be pieced together from the little that is known of his family and career, his personal library, and the literary sources and values inherent in his book. The Puritan Calvinism of the Great Awakening seems to have influenced him through his family, who were new side Presbyterians and supporters of the revivalism of the tenants. But his writings indicate a profound interest in French and Americanism, and, in fact, a preference for the concept of natural law and the religion of reason espoused by Jefferson and Franklin and by the French naturalist Buffon. He decries excessive emotionalism and melancholy preoccupations as destructive of man's ability to resist the brutalizing forces of the wilderness. His own end, as we shall see, may have been due to his failure to overcome the melancholic side of his own nature. The outlines of his career can be briefly stated. After spending the revolution in the peace of a Pennsylvania schoolroom, he suddenly left for Kentucky in 1782 for reasons which are difficult to determine. Walton rejects the notion that Filson might have been suspected of Tory or neutralist sympathies, he speculates that land hunger drew him to the West. It is certainly true that as soon as Filson arrived, he began to lay claim to large tracts of land. It also seems likely that Filson anticipated publishing some kind of study of Kentucky, for he began surveying land for a map and questioning the inhabitants on details of Kentucky history not long after his arrival. He also returned to the classroom, teaching school at Lexington in 1782 and returning to found an academy there after the publication of his book. Although Kentucky made a hero of the poorly educated backwoodsman Boone, Filson's prospectus for his academy emphasizes his belief in the necessity of a town-centered education as a means of saving the Kentuckians from becoming boorish recluses. 
Even in the boom narrative, he puts classical allusions and references to city life into the mouth of the old hunter, in order to impress us with the civility of the hero's mind. Despite his training and cultural pretensions, Filson was not a professional dude, come to mock the frontiersman for his ignorance. While in Kentucky he sought a second education in the knowledge of the wilderness, and his acquaintance with frontiersmen was as large as he could make it in two years of almost constant travel. He spoke to all the prominent pioneers and made his name a byword for inquisitiveness. His guide on surveying trips was Daniel Boone, and they grew close enough for Filson to credit Boone as the first person to whom he confided his plans for the book. The structural plan and argument of Kentuck are modeled on those of the Puritan narratives and histories. But where the traditional sermon form begins with a biblical text, Filson takes the map of Kentucky for his text. His plan is to develop the meaning inherent in the land in much the same way that the Puritan sermon exfoliates the meaning in the biblical passage. The map itself is watermarked with a plowshare and the words work and be rich. By holding the map up to the light, the alert reader can thus see behind the pattern of the map the substance of Filson's doctrine. He develops this thesis in greater detail in the preface and in the opening section, which treats the history, politics. I mean, that is so funny. The secret work and be rich. Um, that, that's why I made the joke of like the rise and grind. Like this is like, there's a like where you're like hiding like the ball here, right? Like uh, especially what we know about how bitter and indebted Boone would become. Um, work hard and grow rich. Like the motherfucker who you, the literal guy who you said did it, didn't do it. Um, and it's just amazing to see these ideas like mutate in real time. We spend so much time on this podcast with the, like these captivity narr- narratives and like like how those stories they're they're not too dissimilar from. Daniel Boone going out into the wilderness, but it's, it's the tone in which they're spoken with, which is like, if you walk out of this, like little tiny spot of land, we have in Massachusetts, you're dead. And like, and God is the only one that's going to save you. And then this story, which is very similar, it's just kind of flipping the script just enough to be like, actually the wilderness is calling out to us. Like that's where God is and God is uh, money or, or or (laughs) success or something, you know, it's just, it's genius to watch it happen. Like it's like watching like alchemy almost just taking those same components and just mixing just a little bit differently to get something that's going to like really take off, which is like settler colonialism basically. Yeah, exactly. And natural history of the province like Jefferson and the physiocrats, Filson reads nature as a Bible in which facts imply moral judgments or grounds for prophecy. Thus the configuration of Kentucky, the richness of her soil, and her location at the headwaters of the Ohio suggest the prophecy that whoever holds Kentucky holds the key to Western Empire. At the same time, the facts of Kentucky's natural endowment suggest that nature itself has intended, and sanctioned, the imperial role for those who hold Kentucky. One moral drawn from nature is, therefore, the recommendation of a specific policy to the federal government, gain control of the rivers, beginning with the Ohio Valley. And that is, we won't play much from this section. Um, uh, we won't play any from this, the earlier sections, but it is just like New Orleans is going to be popping. We want in on this river, guys. Like, let's get this, let's, get, let's lock these rivers down. Filson augments the impact of this physiocratic vision of the land by throwing a romantic and mysterious aura over many of the details of his landscape. He emphasizes exotic natural formations, such as the great limestone caves, and exotic plants and animals peculiar to Kentucky or the Western Hemisphere. He also emphasizes relics of past civilizations, mysterious sepulchers of unspeakably ancient human bones, which imply that America has seen the rise and fall of unknown empires. Mingled with these images of Kentucky's exotic present and mysterious past are brief, matter-of-fact treatises on agronomy, local history, and the laws of land tenure. These treatises foreshadow Filson's utopian vision of Western agrarian democracy and contain hints that Kentucky will be the seat of an American Republic empire in the West. Throughout we see his imagistic logic at work, creating in the reader's mind a series of associations which connect agronomy with utopia, Indian wars with the establishment of empire, and all aspects of Kentucky with romantic images of beauty and mystery. 
These first chapters also introduce the two themes which will create a dialectic within Filson's narrative-like structure, history and geography, the efforts of men to impose their will on the land and their submission to its conditions. These conflicting themes are eventually resolved in a succession of semi-prophetic statements which offer a single, coherent vision of the interdependence of the people's will and the land's requirements. Thus the first section concludes with an assertion that geographic advantages and the settlers' political and economic necessities will determine American domination of the Mississippi Valley. Similar prophecies follow the Boone narrative and the essay on the Indians, each new conclusion voicing a more sweeping vision of American glory. The Boone narrative, which is the next section of Kentuck, epitomizes Filson's method of proving his thesis and justifying his affirmative prophecies through dramatic action rather than abstract logic. The narrative presents Boone as the embodiment of the historical purpose of the American frontiersman, and his adventures are arranged to bring him into close acquaintance with the dual nature of the wilderness. Filson here repeats his dialectic structure in the conflict between Boone's will and the conditions of the wilderness, leading ultimately to a reconciliation of man and land. In addition, the Boone narrative is a stylistic and thematic antithesis of the first section on history and natural history. The narrative takes us back through the landscape we have been viewing as objective scientific observers, showing it to us this time from the highly subjective point of view of a white frontiersman who is emotionally committed to exploring Kentucky and developing its resources. Where the first chapters dwelt on the bounty of the soil and the peaceful growth of democratic institutions, the Boone narrative deals with war, famine, loneliness, and destruction. The history of the Indian, which is Filson's next subject, is the thematic antithesis of the Boone narrative, showing the power of nature to destroy a people's capacity for civilized sentiment and social forms. In the partial transcript of a treaty negotiation that begins the section, Filson, unlike his Puritan forebears, allows the Indians to speak for themselves, revealing both natural dignity and oratorical gifts along with a great moral weakness, God made the white flesh masters of the world. And we all love rum. Eight like his French and Puritan predecessors. I mean, <laughs> what more can you say? Filson discusses the origins of the Indians, <laughs> dwelling on each of the idle speculations put forth by various American and European scholars but he is less interested in scientific debate than in developing a series of images and associated ideas about the Indians that will contribute to his fictive picture of Kentucky. Before he has done with his theorizing over Indian origins, he has populated an apparently primitive continent with lost races of Carthaginians and Viking Danes, as well as the medieval Welsh. He returns to the ancient sepulchre full of bones, at which he glanced in his opening chapters, and discovers mines of potsherds and the remains of an ancient fortification of a style unknown to the present inhabitants. Filson believes that he has discovered in America the picturesque ruins of empire which Volney employed as symbols of the rise and decay of great civilizations. The implication of these speculations is that the Indians represent the remnants of a fallen or degenerated race. The American landscape, which is the scene of Boone's renewal of hope and moral strength, has also been the scene of a great failure. Point nine, the Indian, for Filson, as for the Puritans and for Buffon and Depal, represents a memento mori, a warning of the power of the wilderness to kill man's better nature. The conclusion is not in itself extraordinary, despite the fact that it anticipates so many motifs of Jacksonian culture and politics. What sets it apart from other descriptions of America as a new Eden is the fact that the final vision of paradise is seen growing out of a savage combat and a descent into the wilderness and the world of the Indian. Filson does not attempt to convince his reader of the truth of his vision by eliminating horror from the landscape. Rather, through the medium of the Boone narrative, he conducts his readers through an experience of a range of wilderness emotions and sentiments, hoping to awaken in the reader the sense that only on the frontier could he completely utilize all the emotional and intellectual powers that make him a man. In this Filson stance with both Mather and Jefferson, he says that in the wilderness man is subjected to the naked power of the gods that rule the forces of nature. I mean, I love Slotkin. Um, um, yeah, I just, lo I love this section. I think this is probably where, I've read all three of them now, and this is where I think Slotkin on Boone is where he just absolutely is like singing. He's just like operating at this level of like, it's like, I don't know if there's like any Sopranos fans, but in like the, one of the last episodes of the series when he's like on peyote in the desert and he sees the sun like blinking at him and then he puts his hands in the air and he's like, I get it. Like that to me is like reading Richard Slotkin and like on this chapter, like watching all like all of 
American culture and history just start clicking into place. And it's like, here it is. Like, here it's happening. It's not just like Puritan disputation anymore. It's a character. It's a hero. It's like someone who's entering the wilderness to to rejuvenate himself. I mean, that's that's any conflict that's happened like in our own lifetime. You can see that that topos repeating itself over like through time. Yeah. And in that significance, like the bar relief in the Capitol, like it's not like there's some truth to it. Like, honestly, it's, it's like, that is what that body needed from that guy (laughs) and what it thinks the people need from him too. I mean, it's, it's like spooky um, a little bit like we like, and, and, and you see, I mean, well, Let's move on to the text itself now, I think. Um, uh, and uh, and it's not very, it's not terribly long. It's just a chapter. Like I said, the first one is mainly on the rivers. And then we got on Boone himself and then his speculations and weird shit about the uh, Native Americans and s- lost civilizations, which I'll just say, like, as someone from Mandan, North Dakota, the Mandan tribe was one of these tribes who was considered thought by Europeans to be like... <laughs> descendants of like welsh or something like that and it, it was just a ridiculous thing and once we once they found out that that wasn't the case you know let them die from smallpox in the 1830s but uh uh the they were just like a big trading they, the mandans traded with um from hudson bay to like the southwest so like they're like it's, it's just funny like that that europeans get these ideas in their head of these like like they thought they were white people, right? Like they literally thought it was like white people in the center of the continent. Um, I mean, just, and, and that, that sort of like myth is not only in this Filson's Kentucky, that sort of like theorizing about like, did some Europeans go up the Mississippi in the 1300s? Um, go ahead. Well, yeah. I think that's so important too, for like colonial understandings of native Americans, like before this point is that they're essentially demons that they're Mm -hmm. like projections of the devil himself, like in the wilderness, trying to throw these colonists off uh, the path. And that worked for, you know, enough for 150 years had like enough gas in it. But this idea of like, well, they were great people and they've slid into degeneration and now they're like capricious children is something that is far more powerful and something that's going to like, honestly, you can hear that in so many words about, like in race politics, like today, essentially, like that idea is still like, although the, the, the sentence, like the words may not be there, but the sentiment is very much there. That well, like, we still, Oh, sorry. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was just gonna say, we still call like places like Afghanistan, Indian country when our forces are deployed there. Right. And we, yeah. we come away looking like, Oh, I guess they're not ready for democracy. Uh, yeah. um, sort of thing. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So well, with that little intro, let's, uh, let's, go on with uh what brought us here this is and it's funny how brief some of the discussions of like him saving the girls uh after they were captured by the shawnees were like it's it's probably one of his more like baller moments because he tracks these folks down and uh there's like a gunfight and saves a girl although one of this um one of the rescue company almost bashes one of the girls in with a butt of his rifle um, because he thinks she's a Indian girl instead instead of one of the girls he's trying to rescue. Um, but anyway, so he gets his girls back, and this is right around the revolution um, in 1776. And so it's like this amazing story of like, look, we can do it. We can save our little girls here from the, and we don't need you know uh, the fucking king, uh, uh, the Hanoverians to do it for us. And it, it is like a look at look at what look at our capabilities here. Um, 
so yeah we'll just go through this but like i said he skips over that in a few seconds it's it's just like like to i don't know we'll we'll, we'll, we'll comment on this it goes uh, this is the start of boone's narrative supposedly written by daniel boone of course um written in in uh in as a uh as a team with philson himself curiosity is natural to the soul of man and interesting objects have a powerful influence on our affections let these influencing powers actuate by the permission or disposal of providence from selfish or social views yet in time the mysterious will of heaven is unfolded and we behold our conduct from whatsoever motives excited operating to answer the important designs of heaven thus we behold kentuck lately in howling wilderness the habitation of savages and wild beasts become a fruitful field this region so favorably distinguished by nature now become the habitation of civilization at a period unparalleled in history in the midst of a raging war did you guys lose me yeah i think oh, they're just froze yeah okay one second um i i see i can't see you when i am um sharing um mm. feel free to cut in um whatever you want um during this uh just say speak up because I, I can't see visual cues well just to say about even just from that first section it sounds like the king james bible doesn't it no yeah mm. that those like old like puritan sermons they still kind of hang around like like cobwebs in this text a little bit yeah right and and the, the like um yeah that's a very interesting connection thus we behold kentuck lately in howling wilderness the habitation of savages and wild beasts become a fruitful field this region so favorably distinguished by nature now become the habitation of civilization at a period unparalleled in history in the midst of a raging war and under all the disadvantages of emigration to a country so remote from the inhabited parts of the continent here where the hand of violence shed the blood of the innocent where the horrid yells of savages and the groans of the distressed sounded in our ears we now hear the praises and adoration of our creator where wretched wigwam stood the miserable abodes of savages we behold the foundations of cities laid that in all probability will rival the glory of the greatest and I uh, maybe this is too apologetic of Boone. Uh, I think when you see the things like wretched wigwams, I think that's Filson speaking more than it is Boone. Um, but I mean, ultimately, ultimately, it doesn't matter a whole lot because Boone never took issue with this uh, yeah. and was uh, you know friends with Filson to the end. So I, I, that that distinction might be uh, uh, without a difference. I think Boone kind of enjoyed the fact that Filson made him sound highly educated. <laughs> yeah. And- like way more eloquent than he was right. uh, with like classical, you know, he made him sound like a classically educated gentleman, basically. Yeah. He's making allusions to yeah, the Greeks and stuff. Upon earth. And we view Kentucky situated on the fertile banks of the great Ohio rising from obscurity to shine with splendor equal to any other of the stars of the American hemisphere. The settling of this region well deserves a place in history. Most of the memorable events I have myself been exercised in and for the satisfaction of the public, will briefly relate the circumstances of my adventures, and scenes of life, from my first movement to this country until this day. It was on the 1st of May, in the year 1769, that I resigned my domestic happiness for a time, and left my family and peaceable habitation on the Yadkin River, in North Carolina, to wander through the wilderness. Again, super apologetic for leaving his family there. Like, oh, I, I resigned my domestic happiness. Like, I'm so domestic. Ah. Like, there's right, a, yeah, there's like a... There's a story, I don't know if we'll talk about it later, but where he like is gone for a while and comes back and there's like another kid that his yeah. wife had given. And it was like, he was gone for way too long for that to be possible. And uh, like a gentleman, he's like, well, I guess that's just, <laughs> I guess that's the price you pay for being gone for that long. And he raises his kid. Yeah. Well, I think like, I think it was, and I, there's some, you know, 
concerned that this might be a tall tale, although I think it's actually true and it just wasn't treated by Victorian historians because it, uh, they were too scandalized by it. But yeah, uh, uh, it was there's a story that it was Squire Boone's or Daniel Boone's brother's kid. And Daniel's reaction is like, at least it's a Boone. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. He was, yeah, he was pretty clever about it. <laughs> Which is hilarious. <laughs> also biblical, right? Having yeah, yes. I'm. Yeah, Although, well, I think also it's if you and, haven't had a kid already, but yeah. And he also had a mistress, had an Indian mistress, right? When he was um, living with them, right? Yes. When he was adopted, uh, most certainly, probably. It was on the first of May in the year one thousand seven hundred and sixty-nine that I resigned my domestic happiness for a time and left my family and peaceable habitation on the Yadkin River in North Carolina to wander through the wilderness of America in quest of the country of Kentucky in company with John Finley, John Stewart, Joseph Holden, James Moni, and William Cool, We proceeded successfully, and after a long and fatiguing journey through a mountainous wilderness, in a westward direction, on the seventh day of June following, we found ourselves on Red River, where John Finley had formerly been trading with the Indians, and, from the top of an eminence, saw with pleasure the beautiful level of Kentucky. Here let me observe, that for some time we had experienced the most uncomfortable weather as a prelibation of our future sufferings. At this place we encamped, and made a shelter to defend us from the inclement season, and began to hunt and reconnoitre the country. We found everywhere abundance of wild beasts of all sorts, through this vast forest. The buffaloes were more frequent than I have seen cattle in the settlements, browsing on the leaves of the cane, or cropping the herbage on those extensive plains, fearless, because ignorant, of the violence of man. Sometimes we saw hundreds in a drove, and the numbers about the salt springs were amazing. In this forest, the habitation of beasts of every kind natural to America, we practiced hunting with great success until the 22nd day of December following. This day John Stewart and I had a pleasing ramble, but fortune changed the scene in the close of it. We had passed through a great forest on which stood myriads of trees, some gay with blossoms, others rich with fruits. Nature was here a series of wonders, and a fund of delight. Here she displayed her ingenuity and industry in a variety of flowers and fruits, beautifully colored, elegantly shaped, and charmingly flavored, and we were diverted with innumerable animals presenting themselves perpetually to our view in the decline of the day, near Kentucky River, as we ascended the brow of a small hill, a number of Indians rushed out of a thick cane brake upon us, and made us prisoners. The time of our sorrow was now arrived, and the scene fully opened. The Indians plundered us of what we had, and kept us in confinement seven days. It really is like, I don't know if that's a, like a allusion to like Richard III, the time of our sorrow is now arrived, but like it, uh, right before that, it is like the Garden of Eden almost. Look at all these delicious fruits and animals presenting themselves. Like, uh, it's just, it's very fan, uh, fairy tale like. Well, I think it's also telling that he describes Native Americans or Indians arriving as uh, they would in a play. I think that mm. this idea already there, you can see this kind of playing with fantasy and reality, but like fantasy has real world implications. But I don't know, maybe something with the fact that there's this implicit idea that it's destiny to be there. So even being captured by them is like a form of pantomime almost because what's going to happen is like they're going to win basically. Right treating us with common savage usage. During this time we discovered no uneasiness or desire to escape, which made them less suspicious of us, but in the dead of night, as we lay in a thick cane break by a large fire, when sleep had locked up their senses, my situation not disposing me for rest, I touched my companion and gently awoke him. We improved this favorable opportunity, and departed, leaving them to take their rest, and speedily directed our course towards our old camp, but found it plundered, and the company dispersed and gone home. About this time my brother, Squire Boone, with another adventurer, who came to explore the country shortly after us, was wandering through the forest, determined to find me, if possible, and accidentally found our camp. 
this also reminds me of what we kind of talked about with Hope Leslie and other fiction of, you know, I guess the next uh, 100 years here is how preoccupied it is with escapes and cap- being captive. Like, it's just, I guess it might be just a, a plot device and uh, fiction. It's uh, People love escapes. Notwithstanding the unfortunate circumstances of our company and our dangerous situation, as surrounded with hostile savages, our meeting so fortunately in the wilderness made us reciprocally sensible of the utmost satisfaction. So much does friendship triumph over misfortune, that sorrows and sufferings vanish at the meeting not only of real friends, but of the most distant acquaintances, and substitutes happiness in their room. Soon after this, my companion in captivity, John Stewart, was killed by the savages, and the man that came with my brother returned home by himself. We were then in a dangerous, helpless situation, exposed daily to perils and death amongst savages and wild beasts, not a white man in the country but ourselves. Thus situated, many hundred miles from our families in the howling wilderness, I... A definite conscious of whiteness uh, has developed already here, uh, just to mark that. Thus situated, many hundred miles from our families in the howling wilderness, I believe few would have equally enjoyed the happiness we experienced. I often observe to my brother, you see now how little nature requires to be satisfied. Felicity, the companion of content, is rather found in our own breasts than in the enjoyment of external things, and I firmly believe it requires but a little philosophy to make a man happy in whatsoever state he is. This consists in a full resignation to the will of providence, and a resigned soul finds pleasure in a path strewed with briars and thorns. We continued right, not in the state of indolence, but hunted every day, and prepared a little cottage. That seems like pure Filson of like, creating this, and I think Slotkin talks about this too, of like Boone is this like kind of philosopher frontiersman who's like, sometimes I need to think and reflect almost like a Rousseauian figure on uh, the world and my relationship to it. And it's just like, I have a bit of a doubt that that was ever, ever happening in Boone's mind. Right, exactly. Particularly because we know exact like what actually was happening in Boone's mind, which he's like, fuck, I need to sell like this amount of bear pelts to pay this amount of money back. And <laughs> Uh, and then later, like, oh shit, did I fuck up that bound that property line? Uh, in because we'll get into their surveying, but it's just like shingled land claims, like as in like overlapping. It's not something you want to hear. And basically, by the time like Boone, Boone was one of the most famous because you'd want your shit mapped up by the famous guy, right? Um, there was like more land, uh, sort of surveyed, like twice the amount of land surveyed than actually existed in Kentucky <laughs> was yeah. like parceled out. We continued not in a state of indolence, but hunted every day and prepared a little cottage to defend us from the winter storms. We remained there undisturbed during the winter. And on the first day of May, 1770, my brother returned home to the settlement by himself for a new recruit of horses and ammunition, leaving me by myself without bread, salt or sugar without company of my fellow creatures, or even a horse or dog. I confess I never before was under greater necessity of exercising philosophy and fortitude. A few days I passed uncomfortably. The idea of a beloved wife and family, and their anxiety upon the account of my absence and exposed situation, made sensible impressions on my heart. A thousand dreadful apprehensions presented themselves to my view, and had undoubtedly disposed me to melancholy, if further indulged. One day I undertook a tour through the country, and the diversity and beauties of nature I met with in this charming season, expelled every gloomy and vexatious thought. Just at the close of day the gentle gales retired, and left the place to the disposal of a profound calm. Not a breeze shook the most tremulous leaf. I had gained the summit of a commanding ridge, and, looking round with astonishing delight, beheld the ample plains, the beauteous tracts below. On the other hand, I surveyed the famous river Ohio that rolled in silent dignity, marking the western boundary of Kentucky with inconceivable grandeur. At a vast distance I beheld the mountains lift their venerable brows, and penetrate the clouds. All things were still. I kindled a fire near a fountain of sweet water, and feasted on the loin of a buck, which a few hours before I had killed. 
The sullen shades of night soon overspread the whole hemisphere, and the earth seemed to gasp after the hovering moisture. My roving excursion this day had fatigued my body, and diverted my imagination. I laid me down to sleep, and I awoke not until the sun had chased away the night. I continued this tour, and in a few days explored a considerable part of the country, each day equally pleased as the first. I returned again to my old camp, which was not disturbed in my absence. I did not confine my lodging to it, but often reposed in thick cane breaks, to avoid the savages, who, I believe, often visited my camp, but fortunately for me, in my absence. In this situation I was constantly exposed to danger, and death. How unhappy such a situation for a man tormented with fear, which is vain if no danger comes, and if it does, only augments the pain. It was my happiness to be destitute of this afflicting passion, with which I had the greatest reason to be affected. The prowling wolves diverted my nocturnal hours with perpetual howlings, and the various species of animals in this vast forest, in the daytime, were continually in my view. Thus I was surrounded with plenty in the midst of want. I was happy in the midst of dangers and inconveniences. In such a diversity it was impossible I should be disposed to melancholy. No populous city, with all the varieties of commerce and stately structures, could afford so much pleasure to my mind, as the beauties of nature I found here. That part's really interesting. Um, you know, the the allusion to the particular to commerce, no populous city with all the varieties of commerce and stately structures could afford so much pleasure to my mind. Like, literally, it's so bad out here that you can't get, it's almost good, <laughs> right? Like, you have to, you're worried about wolves and shit. You know, you're not trying to worry about, I mean, like he says, like the commercial uh right like because you know he's in debt but also if you die you're not in debt anymore you have to worry about your family i guess and these are religious folks so they they would be concerned um uh particularly with you know but at the same time like rebecca boom kind of had it locked down and thought he was dead a couple of times uh anyway to the point of having a kid with another man so it's like that that is there is a sense in which i think you know i don't want to overstate because he was indebted, he wasn't like, there was no sense of freedom out there. I think there's probably a a, a very, some, a lot of truth to this. Like you're alone out there. You're, you're literally like um, killing your meal. Uh, I I don't know. It's, what do you think? Well, I think it's a, in the context of this being a type of pamphlet to get people to come here, you would think it's almost at cross purposes of like, this seems like really shitty. Why would you yeah. want to go out here? But they talk, I think either Slocken or Morgan talks a lot about the context in which this is written. And there are a number of attempts to get people to come over and they're always written as like, uh, it's great here. You can literally just like pick, you know, a roast chicken out of like uh, a tree. Like it's, they way oversimplify how easy it is in the frontier. And I think what Filson locks onto probably by seeing someone as like interesting as Boone is like, there's something more than just ease out here. There's like, there's a new sense of self. You can find yourself out here and the places like the city and stuff like that, that's done. These are like dead places and you're not going to like, you're not going to be regenerated in a way that Boone look, look what he's done out here. He has like nothing. And yet he's like found uh, his self in uh, through this contest and like, and you can do that too. It's your destiny. It's your birthright to come out here and find yourself. And I think that's just the genius piece of writing for what it achieved. Right. Yeah, that's, <clears throat> that's so right. Um, it's, it's all about like presenting the wilderness as, as the ultimate opportunity for self-cultivation, self-mastery. Um, and it's interesting thinking about the connection that I mentioned at the beginning to the English romantics that in this passage, Filson at least is is presenting Boone as, you know, someone who 
was able to kind of master emotion, to master his own fear and his own vulnerability and kind of overcome it compared to, you know, the English romantic poets who were much more about exhibiting the extent to which they'd been overwhelmed by emotion and kind of celebrating that as a virtue, um, especially in relation to like communing with the wilderness and being awed by the sublime. And it's interesting to see with Boone that this is, this is pitched very differently. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they both they both the romantics and and Filson here have this sense of surrender. I think is what makes them both equal. That there's, I guess that's what like your reaction to sublime is, where you have to give yourself over to this like this flow mm. of of something that you can't even fully comprehend. And right, it's interesting to see them both come at that from different angles. And that is like where you we haven't uh, talked about Jefferson, but when it, on his like notes of Virginia, when he it's he famously discusses like the standing over a ledge. Uh, a cliff ledge and looking down like that, that sort of, that, that is what the romantics were. They were obsessed with that sort of, sort of like a description of the sublime um, of, of nature. Um, uh, yeah. Here's let's uh, continue here. Thus through an uninterrupted scene of Sylvan pleasures, I spent the time until the 27th day of July following when my brother to my great felicity met me according to appointment at our old camp. Shortly after, we left this place, not thinking it safe to stay there longer, and proceeded to Cumberland River, reconnoitring that part of the country until March, 1771, and giving names to the different waters. Soon after, I returned home to my family with a determination to bring them as soon as possible to live in Kentuck, which I esteemed a second paradise, at the risk of my life and fortune. I returned safe to my old habitation, and found my family in happy circumstances. I sold my farm on the Yadkin, and what goods we could not carry with us, and on the 25th day of September, 1773, bade a farewell to our friends, and proceeded on our journey to Kentuck, in company with five families more, and forty men that joined us in Powell's Valley, which is 150 miles from the now settled parts of Kentuck. This promising beginning was soon overcast with a cloud of adversity, for upon the 10th day of October, the rear of our company was attacked by a number of Indians, who killed six, and wounded one man. Of these my eldest son was one that fell in the action. Though we defended ourselves, and repulsed the enemy, yet this unhappy affair scattered our cattle, brought us into extreme difficulty, and so discouraged the whole company, that we retreated forty miles, to the settlement on Clench River. We had passed over two mountains, viz. Powell's and Walden's, and were approaching Cumberland Mountain when this adverse fortune overtook us. These mountains are in the wilderness, as we pass from the old settlements in Virginia to Kentuck, are ranged in A.S. West and N.E. direction, are of a great length and breadth, and not far distant from each other. Over these, nature hath formed passes, that are less difficult than might be expected from a view of such huge piles. The aspect of these cliffs is so wild and horrid, that it is impossible to behold them without terror. The spectator is apt to imagine that nature had formerly suffered some violent convulsion, and that these are the dismembered remains of the dreadful shock, the ruins, not of Persepolis or Palmyra, but of the world. Yeah, Persepolis, is Persepolis and Palmyra. I, I think Morgan says probably not Boone um, there. I mean, it could have been. I mean, he did read you know, Gulliver's Travels. Um, and I also want to make one note on the pronunciation here. The spelling is Kentuck uh, with an E instead of the Y, but uh, it would have been pronounced Kentucky. The uh, Texas speech is just not uh, doing that for us. Just to note as well, Matt, that in this passage, you get like a textbook um, definition of the sublime, uh, the cliffs that, what is it that I, you just took the, Oh yeah, I'll put it back up uh one second. Here it is. 
Yeah, that sentence. Um, the aspect of these clips is so wild and horrid that it is almost possible, possible to, to, to behold, behold them without terror. Exactly. The whole idea of like <clears throat> intentionally exposing yourself to terror <laughs> right. in order to kind of create um, spiritual sort of subjection. Yeah. That's why, you know, roller coasters are some of the most spiritual places we have. Uh, yeah, Six Flags is uh, like our, um, <laughs> is our cathedral. Our Mont Blanc. <laughs> yeah, it is like, <laughs> yeah, our Mont Blanc is the Batman ride. <laughs> like when I I'll think of like it. where I felt that, it has like, it has been, I guess on a, a cruise to Alaska that I went on with my grandparents, like, seeing some of those mountains was like it, i'm like what the fuck is this where are mm-hmm. this is, does not look like earth um but also like on the looking on the sears tower looking down like that's that feeling that i like oh my god this is not yeah. supposed to be happening right now um and uh it was probably more fun when it was when you couldn't like simulate it with uh technology right like airplanes is that sublime um but like flying on the back of a pterodactyl of course would have been right but uh... <laughs> yeah or like going to brooklyn bowl and being like whoa it's a bar and a bowling alley this is the most sublime <laughs> thing i've ever seen right exactly yeah i remained with my family on clench until the 6th of june 1774 when i and one michael stoner were solicited by governor dunmore of virginia sure. to go to the falls of the ohio to conduct into the settlement a number of surveyors that had been sent thither by him some months before this country having about this time drawn the attention of many adventurers. We immediately complied with the governor's request, and conducted in the surveyors, completing a tour of 800 miles, through many difficulties, in 62 days. Soon after I returned home, I was ordered to take the command of three garrisons during the campaign, which Governor Dunmore carried on against the Shawains Indians, after the conclusion of which, the militia was discharged from each garrison, and I being relieved from my post, was solicited by a number of North Carolina gentlemen, that were about purchasing the lands lying on the S side of Kentuck River, from the Cherokee Indians, to attend their treaty at Wadhaga, in March, 1775, to negotiate with them, and mention the boundaries of the purchase. This I accepted, and at the request of the same gentleman, undertook to mark out a road in the best passage from the settlement through the wilderness to Kentuck, with such assistance as I thought necessary to employ for such an important undertaking. I soon began this work, having collected a number of enterprising men, well armed. We proceeded with all possible expedition until we came within 15 miles. So just to uh, note there that they signed a treaty with the Cherokee. Nonetheless, he goes with a bunch of well-armed men. Why would that need to be so? Well, it's because the Shawnee are like, what? We told you not to fucking come here. We got beef, right? They, the, the, the treaty with the Cherokee was basically something to put on the uh, sale documents to make the lands more marketable to speculators, basically. Uh, and one other thing that I will just note is these, when you bought this land, they often came with the requirement that you had to improve them by making a cabin or some such, uh, like a barn, those sorts of things on it, uh, which is very central to the entire logic of why the Europeans or American colonists decided that they could own these lands right we improve them whereas the natives just like waste it and run around you know hunting on them uh and uh and the irony is that boone lost his lands in missouri because he didn't do any of that improvement stuff uh later in later uh after all of this back in the in the 1800s um 
anyway, back on with uh, our text here. Matt, I've I've got to go pretty soon. Um, okay. I have to go to my parents, but um, you guys should just keep going, obviously. Um, but I'm going to have to drop off in about five minutes. Okay, cool. Do you, uh, yeah, we'll, should we just, we'll say goodbye to you then, but thanks, Grace. We appreciate it. You should say um, you're going into the wilderness. Yeah. <laughs> I am going into the wilderness of Cumbria. Unless you want to take off, if, if you want, you can uh, use this moment. Or yeah, you want sure. to... Okay, cool. All right. Well, Grace, we really appreciate it. Um, sorry yeah. for uh, keeping you uh, so late uh, this evening, but uh, no we'll be back. Uh, I don't know. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you. We'll be on the group chat about what we do next. If it's going to be Milton or Gulliver's Travels or something like that. So. Oh, fun. Yeah. All right. Well, See you, Grace. Okay. Bye. 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 All right. I was worried about that, actually. I appreciate Grace for uh, staying out as long as she did. Um, yeah, we'll uh, we'll continue here and then uh, g- get into like his bitterness and uh, wrap up. Cool. Uh, I soon began this work, having collected a number of enterprising men, well-armed. We proceeded with all possible expedition until we came within 15 miles of where Boonesboro now stands, and where we were fired upon by a party of Indians that killed two, and wounded two of our number, yet, although surprised and taken at a disadvantage, we stood our ground. This was on the 20th of March, 1775. Three days after, we were fired upon again, and had two men killed, and three wounded. Afterwards we proceeded on to Kentuck River without opposition, and on the first day of April began to erect the fort of Boonesboro at Assault Lick, about 60 yards from the river, on the S side. On the fourth day, the Indians killed one of our men we were busily employed in building this fort, until the 14th day of June following, without any farther opposition from the Indians, and having finished the works, I returned to my family, on Clench. In a short time, I proceeded to remove my family from Clench to this garrison, where we arrived safe without any other difficulties than such as are common to this passage, my wife and daughter being the first white women that ever stood on the banks of Kentuck River. On the 24th day of December following we had one man killed, and one wounded, by the Indians, who seemed determined to persecute us for erecting this fortification. Yeah, because they told you not to. And we'll notice here, this is uh, the 14th day of July. So, you know, uh, 14th day of July, 1776. So this is this next part is when the... Uh, two of Colonel Calloway's daughters and one of his were taken prisoner. On the 14th day of July, 1776, two of C.O.L. Calloway's daughters and one of mine were taken prisoners near the fort. I immediately pursued the Indians with only eight men and on the 16th overtook them, killed two of the party and recovered the girls. The same day on which this attempt was made, the Indians divided themselves into different parties and attacked several forts, which were shortly before this time erected, doing a great deal of mischief. This was extremely distressing to the new settlers. The innocent husbandman was shot down, while busy cultivating the soil for his family's supply. Most of the cattle around the stations were destroyed. They continued their hostilities in this manner until the 15th of April, 1777, when they attacked Boonesboro with a party of above 100 in number, killed one man, and wounded for their loss in this attack was not certainly known to us. On the fourth day of July following, a party of about 200 Indians attacked Boonesboro, killed one man, and wounded two. They besieged us 48 hours, during which time seven of them were killed, and at last, finding themselves not likely to prevail, they raised the siege, and departed. The Indians had disposed their warriors in different parties at this time, and attacked the different garrisons to prevent their assisting each other, and did much injury to the distressed inhabitants. On the 19th day of this month, C.O.L. Logan's Fort was besieged by a party of about 200 Indians. During this dreadful siege they did a great deal of mischief, distressed the garrison, in which were only 15 men, killed two, and wounded one. The enemy's loss was uncertain, from the common practice which the Indians have of carrying off their dead in time of battle. C.O.L. Herod's fort was then defended by only 65 men, 
and Boonesboro by 22, there being no more forts or white men in the country, except at the falls, a considerable distance from these, and all taken collectively, were but a handful to the numerous warriors that were everywhere dispersed through the country, intent upon doing all the mischief that savage barbarity could invent. Thus we passed through a scene of sufferings that exceeds description. On the 25th of this month a reinforcement of 45 men arrived from North Carolina, and about the 20th of August following, C.O.L. Bowman arrived. I just want to dwell on that a little bit, where they come back to um, to rebury the dead. I mean, like, honestly, like, a truly horrific scene, as mm-hmm. far as, like, I like I think it's, like, almost, like, a horror movie genre start like you, you like you're you're putting away bodies that you can't even identify because they're so like mangled something like that like the, the, it reminds me of i think feel feel like um the captivity narratives have occasional scenes like this too well i think that's pertinent too because you know if you're looking at like cultural histories like so many horror movies and stuff like that are going to be based around like home invasion and that anxiety through transmission is through things like this, like these kind of stories. And I think, you know, this Filson thing or this Filson piece really squares that circle of it can't just be Boone and these other rugged frontiersmen going and saving their own lives. There has to be something a little bit more valuable. And he expertly brings in, you know, whether it Mm. happened or not, just as a narrative, like Boone's family is with them and they're extremely vulnerable to this land. They're not attuned to the wilderness and that's like the locus of the story. And you had just touched on it before that like at the end of the day, it's the homestead is like, is uh, like the atomic reason for uh, settlement. And that needs to be protected like at all costs. And it's very vulnerable to like these swift, brutal attacks by uh, native Americans that won't care, you know, one, what to do with you basically uh, according, you know, to their story. And like, I, I, I was reading a lot about like, Buffalo Bill and like Wild West shows and how popular they were. And every single time a Wild West, which is a, like a historic reenactment of American history for the most part, it always ended with an attack by Native Americans on the settler home and then Buffalo Bill riding into the arena and, you know, shooting them all dead. And then everyone like cheering and clapping. And this goes yeah. on until like 1914, like a, <laughs> World War One, if you can imagine. So mm-hmm. this idea of like, it's not just to regenerate yourself. It's not just to feel good about yourself. It's also so you can arm yourself and you can protect uh, what's most important, which is like the homestead. And what does a country that is weaned on that narrative, how do they react to something like nine 11? Exactly. Right. Well, it was like, then um, actually, yeah, just one more thing on that. i just read uh, reign of terror. That is it. What's his, who wrote that recently? Uh, Spencer. Ackerman. Thank you guys. Yeah. And he has a brilliant passage on that about at the end of the day, like 9-11 is Osama bin Laden daring the American psyche to be itself. And, uh, <laughs> like, yeah, pretty much. Just like, I dare you to like, to treat me like a Native American or like you would, and you don't even know why. And it's like, yeah, pretty much. Like, that's exactly how it played out. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> there being no more forts or white men in the country, except at the falls, a considerable distance from these, and all taken collectively, were but a handful to the numerous warriors that were everywhere dispersed through the country, intent upon doing all the mischief that savage barbarity could invent. Thus we passed through a scene of sufferings that exceeds description. On the 25th of this month a reinforcement of 45 men arrived from North Carolina, and about the 20th of August following, C.O.L. Bowman arrived with 100 men from Virginia. Now we began to strengthen, and from hence, 
for the space of six weeks, we had skirmishes with Indians, in one quarter or other, almost every day. The savages now learned the superiority of the long knife, as they call the Virginians, by experience, being outgeneraled in almost every battle. Our affairs began to wear a new aspect, and the enemy, not daring to venture on open war, practiced secret mischief at times. On the first day of January, 1778, I went with a party of thirty men to the Blue Licks, on Licking River, to make salt for the different garrisons in the country. On the seventh day of February, as I was hunting, to procure meat for the company, I met with a party of one hundred and two Indians, and two Frenchmen, on their march against Boonesboro, that place being particularly the object of the enemy. They pursued, and took me, and brought me on the eighth day to the Licks, where twenty-seven of my party were, three of them having previously returned home with the salt. I knowing it was impossible for them to escape, capitulated with the enemy, and, at a distance in their view, gave notice to my men of their situation, with orders not to resist, but surrender themselves captives. The generous usage the Indians had promised before in my capitulation, was afterwards fully complied with, and we proceeded with them as prisoners to Old Calicoth, the principal Indian town, on Little Miami, where we arrived, after an uncomfortable journey, in very severe weather, on the 18th day of February, and received as good treatment as prisoners could expect from savages on the 10th day of March following, I, and ten of my men, were conducted by forty Indians to Detroit, where we arrived the 30th day, and were treated by Governor Hamilton, the British commander at that post. Uh, so a couple things. First, he mentioned they were uh, uh, boiling salt. That was a very dangerous activity because the natives local to the uh, area always knew where the salt springs were, and you had to be set up over them for days on end boiling this stuff with firewood, which left big smoke that could attract everyone mm. to what you were doing. So you were sitting ducks. If, and uh, it was so it was a big thing. Um, uh, and we'll actually lose one of Boone's sons, Israel, the second one, at a uh, the at the Battle of the Blue at Blue Salt Lick, uh, which is another like salt lick. So the procuring salt was dangerous, but you did it anyway because you know it tastes fucking delicious. Um, yeah. <laughs> you would too, listener, if we didn't have a readily available. Like imagine the supply chain crisis, but it's even worse where there's no salt. Exactly. And actually, when Boone gets to Missouri, they start like Boone's Lick. They started a town called Boone's Lick that he actually doesn't live in and participate in because he's old as hell at that point. But it attracts people because it's Boone. It's got the name on it, <laughs> the brand name. Yeah. Um, but also, he's so he's captured by the, uh, the uh, Indian, the Shawnees here and taken to the uh, Brits in uh, Fort Detroit. This is he's court-martialed for because of his, his surrender and uh, he's also concerned because, or he's also, they also accuse him of sharing secrets, not only of the land, but also how to make things like gunpowder, uh, which mm-hmm. I think he did tell, uh, tell uh, Governor Hamilton he knew how to do, which by the way, just as an aside, he learned how to make gunpowder from a slave. Uh, uh, and I don't know if we get into that. We can do that maybe in the next episode, the, uh, the role of slaves in, um, I think I'll have maybe a portion to play at the end, but uh, mm-hmm. he learned, he had a very a hunting partner that he also owned, but they like could they yes. had, they were had such a great psychic connection that they could hunt all day without talking, um, I guess. Uh, and go ahead. The Morgan biography really struggles with this section. I think. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and right, like try, and it's it's interesting the way they struggle right because they will put in like the the thing you should say like nonetheless this is an ownership thing and and there's an include there's an inclusion of like somebody else really treating a slave horribly um 
but then yeah i don't know um i think they have a hard time with understanding like that like that level of a person which is almost channeling an entire like moment in time as they're doing so because they can handle many more contradictions than maybe the average person can (laughs) that there's all these different forces that are flowing through them and they'll be like yeah fine normal so they can be like talk about their own personal freedom all day while walking toe in toe with the person that they own like it's nothing right and it's like it's a lot easier fucking explore shit when someone's carrying your hunting rifle um post with great humanity during our travels, the Indians entertained me well, and their affection for me was so great, that they utterly refused to leave me there with the others, although the governor offered them 100 pounds sterling for me, on purpose to give me a parole to go home. Several English gentlemen there, being sensible of my adverse fortune, and touched with human sympathy, generously offered a friendly supply for my wants, which I refused, with many thanks for their kindness, adding, that I never expected it would be in my power to recompense such unright generosity. There's some blatant, I think, dishonesty here. Uh, Hamilton gave him a horse that he rode back on. Um, there's this weird myth making that fails about Boone that he pays off all of his debts and <laughs> right, right, which yeah. is the exact opposite to the reality. It's I think it protests a little bit too much. Like I didn't want to take anything from them because I could never pay them back. Which like also, again, he was court martialed for what he did with regards to the Brits and the uh, Shawnees here. The Indians left my men in captivity with the British at Detroit, and on the 10th day of April brought me towards Old Kalakoth, where we arrived on the 25th day of the same month. This was a long and fatiguing march, through an exceeding fertile country, remarkable for fine springs and streams of water. At Kalakoth I spent my time as comfortably as I could expect, was adopted, according to their custom, into a family where I became a son, and had a great share in the affection of my new parents, brothers, sisters, and friends. I was exceedingly familiar and friendly with them, always appearing as cheerful and satisfied as possible, and they put great confidence in me. I often went a-hunting with them, and frequently gained their applause for my activity at our shooting matches. I was careful not to exceed many of them in shooting, for no people are more envious than they in this sport. I could observe, in their countenances and gestures, the greatest expressions of joy when they exceeded me, and, when the reverse happened, of envy. The Shawains king took great notice of me, and treated me with profound respect, and entire friendship, often entrusting me to hunt at my liberty. I frequently returned with the spoils of the woods, and as often presented some of what I had taken to him, expressive of duty to my sovereign. My food and lodging was, in common, with them, not so good indeed as I could desire, but necessity made everything acceptable. I now began to meditate and escape, and carefully avoided their suspicions, continuing with them at Old Kalakoth until the first day of June following, and then was taken by them to the salt springs on Scytha, and kept there, making salt, ten days. During this time I hunted some for them, and found the land, for a great extent about this river, to exceed the soil of Kentuck, if possible, and remarkably well watered. When I returned to Kalakoth, alarmed to see 450 Indians, of their choicest warriors, painted and armed in a fearful manner, ready to march against Boonesboro, I determined to escape the first opportunity. And so this is where Boone's defense is. He, like, helped warn and keep people safe. And I think there's actually probably a fair bit of uh, validity to it. Mm-hmm. 16th, before sunrise, I departed in the most secret manner, and arrived at Boonesboro on the 20th, after a journey of 160 miles, during which I had but one meal. I found our fortress in a bad state of defense, but we proceeded immediately to repair our flanks, strengthen our gates and posterns, and form double bastions, which we complete in ten days. In this time we daily expected the arrival of the Indian army, and at length, one of my fellow prisoners, escaping from them, arrived, informing us that the enemy had an account of my departure, and postponed their expedition three weeks the Indians had spies out viewing our movements, and were greatly alarmed with our increase in number and fortifications. 
the grand councils of the nations were held frequently, and with more deliberation than usual. They evidently saw the approaching hour when the long knife would dispossess them of their desirable habitations, and anxiously concerned for futurity, determined utterly to extirpate the whites out of Kentuck. We were not intimidated by their movements, but frequently gave them proofs of our courage. About the 1st of August, I made an incursion into the Indian country, with a party of 19 men, in order to surprise a small town up Syatha, called Paint Creek Town. We advanced within four miles thereof, where we met a party of 30 Indians, on their march against Boonesboro, intending to join the others from Kalikoth. A smart fight ensued betwixt us for some time, at length the savages gave way, and fled. We had no loss on our side, the enemy had one killed, and two wounded. We took from them three horses, and all their baggage, and being informed, by two of our number that went to their town, that the Indians had entirely evacuated it, we proceeded no further, and returned with all possible expedition to assist our garrison against the other party. We passed by them on the sixth day, and on the seventh, we arrived safe at Boonesboro. On the eighth, the Indian army arrived, being 444 in number, commanded by Capt. Duquesne, eleven other Frenchmen, and some of their own chiefs, and marched up within view of our fort, with British and French colors flying, and having sent a summons to me, in his Britannic Majesty's name, to surrender the fort, I requested two days' consideration, which was granted. It was now a critical period with us we were a small number in the garrison a powerful army before our walls, whose appearance proclaimed inevitable death, fearfully painted, and marking their footsteps with desolation. Death was preferable to captivity, and if taken by storm, we must inevitably be devoted to destruction. In this situation we concluded to maintain our garrison, if possible. We immediately proceeded to collect what we could of our horses, and other cattle, and bring them through the post-urns into the fort, and in the evening of the ninth, I returned answer, that we were determined to defend our fort while a man was living now, said I to their commander, who stood attentively hearing my sentiments, we laugh at all your formidable preparations, but thank you for giving us notice and time to provide for our defense. Your efforts will not prevail, for our gates shall forever deny you admittance whether this answer affected... Bit of Monty Python, the Holy Grail, sort of... Uh, yeah, I'm kind of surprised that, I mean, maybe I don't know enough about military history, but if an invading army comes near a fort and they're like, can you give us two days? And they're like, okay, it seems like completely antithetical to attack to, to like, you want to meet them by surprise. I always thought like historically. Yeah. I mean, this is that old ready. school. This is that like where you parlay and talk about it, right? Like in, um, you know, like uh, last of the Mohicans, right? Where there's that scene where they come out before the battle. It's like, yeah. oh, you want to give up on this or do you want to like let us go? Yeah, uh, that's true. It certainly has like a like a flair of like ancient fighting almost, you know, like combat in like uh, the Iliad or something where it's like enemies with deep respect for each other being like, this is our life. Our way of life is constantly clashing. Yeah, here's our flag. And do you want to come out? Yeah, exactly. And then, but then I like the devolution of like uh, you swear at them because there's a in both these books, it mentions like taunting as a thing in in these sorts of fights but also in fights against like just the shawnees and not against like other europeans um mm-hmm. but um yeah you, uh that stuff isn't recorded which is a great shame that is a great loss to history yeah. that war taunting uh and swearing was not recorded that's the real dark web their courage will not i cannot tell but contrary to our expectations they formed a scheme to deceive us declaring it was their orders, from Governor Hamilton, to take us captives, and not to destroy us, but if nine of us would come out, and treat with them, they would immediately withdraw their forces from our walls, and return home peaceably. This sounded grateful in our ears, and we agreed to the proposal. We held the treaty within sixty yards of the garrison, on purpose to divert them from a breach of honor, as we could not avoid suspicions of the savages. In this situation the articles were formally agreed to, and signed, and the Indians told us it was customary with them, on such occasions, for two Indians to shake hands with every white man in the treaty, as an evidence of entire friendship. We agreed to this also, 
but were soon convinced their policy was to take us prisoners. They immediately grappled us, but although surrounded. That is such a funny trick to me. Like uh, we want to formalize this treaty. And the way we do that is two of us shake hands with one of you, every one of you. It's yeah. it's just our way of doing things. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you don't do it that way. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, we've been doing that forever. Oh, you guys don't do the two handshake to one handshake thing. I I mean, you, who talk about civilized? Yeah, we could try your way, but let's just try our way first. Let's just do our see. way first. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then they basically they don't they uh, extricate themselves. They say here um, they had sharpshooters firing. That's how they they get out of here by hundreds of savages. We extricated ourselves from them and escaped all safe into the garrison, except one that was wounded, through a heavy fire from their army. They immediately attacked us on every side, and a constant heavy fire ensued between us day and night for the space of nine days. In this time the enemy began to undermine our fort, which was situated 60 yards from Kentuck River. They began at the watermark and proceeded in the bank some distance, which we understood by their making the water muddy with the clay, and we immediately proceeded to disappoint their design, by cutting a trench across their subterranean passage. The enemy discovering our countermine, by the clay we threw out of the fort, desisted from that stratagem, and experience now fully convincing them that neither their power nor policy could affect their purpose, on the 20th day of August they raised the siege, and departed. During this dreadful siege, which threatened death in every form, we had two men killed, and four wounded, besides a number of cattle. We killed of the enemy 37, and wounded a great number. After they were gone, we picked up 125 pounds weight of bullets, besides what stuck in the logs of our fort, which certainly is a great proof of their industry. Soon after this, I went into the settlement, and nothing worthy of a place in this account passed in my affairs for some time. During my absence from Kentuck, C.O.L. Bowman carried on an expedition against the Shawains, at Old Kulikoth, with 160 men, in July, 1779. Here they arrived undiscovered, and a battle ensued, which lasted until 10 o'clock, a.m. when C.O.L. Bowman, finding he could not succeed at this time, retreated about 30 miles. The Indians, in the meantime, collecting all their forces, pursued and overtook him, when a smart fight continued near two hours, not to the advantage of C.O.L. Bowman's party. C.O.L. Herod proposed to mount a number of horse, and furiously to rush upon the savages, who at this time fought with remarkable fury. This desperate step had a happy effect, broke their line of battle, and the savages fled on all sides. In these two battles we had nine killed, and one wounded. The enemy's loss uncertain, only two scalps being taken. On the 22nd day of June, 1780, a large party of Indians and Canadians, about 600 in number, commanded by C.O.L. Bird, attacked Riddles and Martin stations, at the forks of Licking River, with six pieces of artillery. They carried this expedition so secretly, that the unwary inhabitants did not discover them, until they fired upon the forts, and, not being prepared to oppose them, were obliged to surrender themselves miserable captives to barbarous savages, who immediately after tomahawked one man and two women, and loaded all the others with heavy baggage, forcing them along toward their towns, able or unable to march. Such as were weak and faint by the way, they tomahawked. The tender women, and helpless children, fell victims to their cruelty. This, and the savage treatment they received afterwards, is shocking to humanity, and too barbarous to relate. The hostile disposition of the savages, and their allies, caused General Clark, the commandant at the falls of the Ohio, immediately to begin an expedition with his own regiment, and the armed force of the country, against Peckaway, the principal town of the Shawains, on a branch of Great Miami, which he finished with great success, took 17 scalps, and burnt the town to ashes, with the loss of 17 men. About this time I returned to Kentuck with my family, and here, to avoid an inquiry into my conduct, the reader being before informed of my bringing my family to Kentuck, I am under the necessity of informing him that, during my captivity with the Indians, my wife, who despaired of ever seeing me again, expecting the Indians had put a period to my life, oppressed with the distresses of the country, and bereaved of me, her only happiness, had, before I returned, 
transported my family and goods. On horses, through the wilderness, amidst a multitude of dangers, to her father's house, in North Carolina. Shortly after the troubles at Boonesboro, I went to them, and lived peaceably there until this time. The history of my going home, and returning with my family, forms a series of difficulties, an account of which would swell a volume, and being foreign to my purpose, I shall purposely omit them. It's interesting that he even, like, alludes to them. Like, yeah. I, I, you wouldn't have even known that you had these troubles if you didn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's almost like he's preparing. It's, uh, there's, it's it, obviously not, like, in any, like, cognizant way, but it, it is when he's talking about, like, all this could fill many volumes, and it's like, it will very soon. Like, he's going right. to be, like, one of the most covered subjects in American history, like, within, like, a few decades. And it's interesting to be, like, Part of him's like, I got to get out in front of some of this <laughs> a little bit before because my life is going to be talked about so much, possibly. I don't know. It is but odd, then, though. but in uh, ironically, giving them the peg to be like, what did he mean by this? <laughs> yeah, well, right? of course. Yeah, it's like that's every person, like, like don't pay attention to this. And then they like, have like a big arrow <laughs> to it. Yeah. Like, you could have just been like, I went back with my family in North Carolina. That's it. And no one like, the wise. I do like his wife being distressed by the state of the country to have a child with someone else is pretty good. Just being like, <laughs> ah, the country is so screwed up. <laughs> Just yeah, exactly. Need, need to have my, my husband's brother right now. <laughs> I settled my family in Boonesboro once more. And shortly after on the sixth day of October, 1780, I went in company with my brother to the blue licks. And on our return home, we were fired upon by a party of Indians. They shot him and pursued me by the scent of their dog three miles but I killed the dog, and escaped. The winter soon came on, and was very severe, which confined the Indians to their wigwams. The severity of this winter caused great difficulties in Kentucky. The enemy had destroyed most of the corn, the summer before. This necessary article was scarce and dear, and the inhabitants lived chiefly on the flesh of buffaloes. The circumstances of many were very lamentable, however, being a hardy race of people, and accustomed to difficulties and necessities, they were wonderfully supported through all their sufferings, until the ensuing fall, when we received abundance from the fertile soil. Towards spring, we were frequently harassed by Indians, and, in May, 1782, a party assaulted Ashton Station, killed one man, and took a Negro prisoner. Capt. Ashton, with 25 men, pursued, and overtook the savages, and a smart fight ensued, which lasted two hours, but they being superior in number, obliged Captain Ashton's party to retreat, with the loss of eight killed, and four mortally wounded, their brave commander himself being numbered among the dead. The Indians continued their hostilities, and, about the 10th of August following, two boys were taken from Major Hoy Station. This party was pursued by Capt. Holder and 17 men, who were also defeated, with the loss of four men killed, and one wounded. Our affairs became more and more alarming. Several stations which had lately been erected in the country were continually infested with savages, stealing their horses and killing the men at every opportunity. In a field, near Lexington, an Indian shot a man, and running to scalp him, was himself shot from the fort, and fell dead upon his enemy. Every day we experienced recent mischiefs. The barbarous savage nations of Shawains, Cherokees, Wyandots, Tawas, Delawares, and several others near Detroit, united in a war against us, and assembled their choicest warriors at Old Kulikoth, to go on the expedition, in order to destroy us, and entirely depopulate the country. Their savage minds were inflamed to mischief by two abandoned men, Captains McKee and Gertie. These led them to execute every diabolical scheme, and, on the 15th day of August, commanded a party of Indians and Canadians, of about 500 in number, against Bryant's Station, five miles from Lexington. Without demanding a surrender, they furiously assaulted the garrison, which was happily prepared to oppose them, and, after they had expended much ammunition in vain, and killed the cattle round the fort, not being likely to make themselves masters of this place, they raised the siege, and departed in the morning of the third day after they came, with the loss of about thirty killed, 
and the number of wounded uncertain of the garrison four were killed, and three wounded. On the 18th day col. Todd, col. Trigg, Major Harland, and myself, speedily collected 176 men, well armed, and pursued the savages. They had marched beyond the Blue Licks to a remarkable bend of the main fork of Licking River, about 43 miles from Lexington, as it is particularly represented in the map, where we overtook them on the 19th day. The savages observing us, gave way, and we, being ignorant of their numbers, passed the river. When the enemy saw our proceedings, having greatly the advantage of us in situation, they formed the line of battle, represented in the map, from one bend of Licking to the other, about a mile from the Blue Licks. An exceeding fierce battle immediately began, for about 15 minutes, when we, being overpowered by numbers, were obliged to retreat, with the loss of 67 men, seven of whom were taken prisoners. The brave and much lamented Colonels Todd and Trigg, Major Harland, and my second son, were among the dead. We were informed that the Indians, numbering their dead, found they had four killed more than we, and therefore, four of the prisoners they had taken, were, by general consent, ordered to be killed, in a most barbarous manner, by the young warriors, in order to train them up to cruelty, and then they proceeded to their towns. This moment is... Probably the worst in uh, Boone's life. He uh, reflects mm -hmm. on it a little bit later uh, uh, in a couple paragraphs. But I want to include the section from Morgan uh, describing this law, the death of the son Israel, uh, his second son lost in uh, Indian fighting. And what sort of like led what led up to it and why it was a, one of the made, main, major regrets in Boone's life. This is the Battle of the Blue Licks. I called it the Blue Salt Lick earlier, but it is a salt lick. Um, but Blue Licks, August 19, 1782. Uh, it's the last loyalist victory of the Revolutionary War. And uh, here is Morgan describing it. Boone had hunted and camped at the Blue Licks many times. It was here he had surrendered the salt boilers to Blackfish and the Shawnees. It was near here that he had rescued his daughter Jemima and the two Callaway girls. They wished to seduce a pursuing enemy into an ambush, Boone argued. Boone's experience and his argument and the evidence he presented seemed to persuade Colonels Todd and Trigg to wait for Logan's larger force. I caution you against crossing the river at any rate, before spies have reconnoitered the ground, Boone added. It was at this point that McGarry, still smarting from Todd's humiliating suggestion at Bryan Station, asserted there was no reason for delay. For the sake of argument, the officers began to discuss the choice of tactics, if they did decide to attack immediately. Boone suggested that if they made a move now, they should divide their men and let half cross the river at a ford upstream. Then the two groups could attack the Indians from different sides, weakening the effects of an ambush. Boone's plan might have been adopted and executed by a better organized and better trained force. Neil O'Hammond writes, Another account by Boone's grandson was that Boone suggested that the only reconnoiter in the rear of British officer Caldwell. This would have been excellent advice, to gather intelligence about the size and position of the enemy before rushing ahead. But militias rarely used complex strategies or even flanking movements. They either fired from the cover of trees or rushed straight ahead into a battle. Two men volunteered to ride along the river looking for Indians, but they came back after a few minutes reporting they had seen none. By godly, McGarry shouted. Why not fight them then? And then he turned to Boone and said he had never known Daniel to be a coward before. No man has ever dared to call me a coward, Boone shot back. 
Tears came into Boone's eyes. He was so surprised and hurt by the accusation. His integrity and long experience with Indians seemed to count for little in the face of such anger. Boone, the man of caution, who tried to avoid bloodshed, calm in emergencies, was swept aside in an instant of fury. In Nathan Boone's account, I can go as far in an Indian fight as any man, Boone shouted back, and took his place in front of the advancing soldiers, as did the other officers. Nathan's wife, Olive, told Draper that Boone felt McGarry was angry because it was Boone who had suggested they wait for Logan's larger force. As tempers flared, McGarry, still mounted on his horse, yelled, Them that ain't cowards follow me, and I'll show you where the yellow dogs are. The men that McGarry had brought from Harrodsburg followed him, and then others followed also. An evil chemistry seemed to be at work. None of the men wanted to be seen by their fellow soldiers as cowards. Once a few went, the others had to go. The colonels watching them follow the excited major were helpless to stop the process set in motion, as most of the men rode their horses into the river. Todd and Trigg and Boone rode with them. It was the worst mistake of Boone's life. Some who knew him in later years said he never forgave himself for losing his temper at the Blue Licks that morning. Had he kept calm, as was his habit, he might have prevented the debacle. That he let himself be provoked by the unstable McGarry showed a weakness in his leadership and in his character. I mean, you start crying because somebody calls you a coward, like, and then your son dies. Is that that's that's tragedy right there? Yeah, it's definitely poetic, and it's yeah. it is interesting to see that like how how stable is his relationship with the homestead, and this would seem like not not great. You know, it seems like he didn't seem to be a negative force in people's lives, but was uh, reckless, I think, to say the least, like willing to live the world of like fast and violent wilderness at the expense of everyone around him. Yeah. And, you know, you look at this, uh, this bar relief, the, I'll put it in the show notes, conflict of Daniel Boone and the Indian 1773 reliefs, uh, uh, sculpture and you wonder is made in 1827 you wonder what Boone would have thought right like mm-hmm. if you had reflected on that moment where he says with tears in his eyes I can go as far as Indian war as any man mm-hmm. and it leads to like his son dying I mean uh, but anyway uh, and it's interesting to see how they uh, they treat it here so we'll continue on with the uh, Filson narrative D my second son were among the dead we were informed that the Indians numbering their dead, found they had four killed more than we, and therefore, four of the prisoners they had taken, were, by general consent, ordered to be killed, in a most barbarous manner, by the young warriors, in order to train them up to cruelty, and then they proceeded to their towns. On our retreat we were met by C.O.L. Logan, hastening to join us, with a number of well-armed men, this powerful assistance we unfortunately wanted in the battle, for, notwithstanding the enemy's superiority of numbers, they acknowledged that, if they had received one more fire from us, they should undoubtedly have given way. So valiantly did our small party fight, that, to the memory of those who unfortunately fell in the battle, enough of honor cannot be paid. Had C.O.L. Logan and his party been with us, it is highly probable we should have given the savages a total defeat. I cannot reflect upon this dreadful scene, but sorrow fills my heart. A zeal for the defense of their country led these heroes to the scene of action, though with a few men to attack a powerful army of experienced warriors. When we gave way, they pursued us with the utmost eagerness, and in every quarter spread destruction. The river was difficult to cross, and many were killed in the flight, some just entering the river, some in the water, others after crossing and ascending the cliffs. Some escaped on horseback, a few on foot, and, being dispersed everywhere, in a few hours, brought the melancholy news of this unfortunate battle to Lexington. Many widows were now made. 
the reader may guess what sorrow filled the hearts of the inhabitants, exceeding anything that I am able to describe. Being reinforced, we returned to bury the dead, and found their bodies strewed everywhere, cut and mangled in a dreadful manner. This mournful scene exhibited a horror almost unparalleled, some torn and eaten by wild beasts, those in the river eaten by fishes, all in such a petrified condition, that no one could be distinguished from another. As soon as General Clark, then at the falls of the Ohio, who was... That's what I meant earlier. I, I, I alluded to it early, um, when I talk about the, um, the horror scene where they couldn't, mm-hmm. they're, with the bodies they couldn't tell from each other. That's, that's the part that I was talking about. Ever our ready friend, and merits the love and gratitude of all his countrymen, understood the circumstances of this unfortunate action, he ordered an expedition, with all possible haste, to pursue the savages, which was so expeditiously effected, that we overtook them within two miles of their towns, and probably might have obtained a great victory, had not two of their number met us about two hundred poles before we come up. These returned quick as lightning to their camp with the alarming news of a mighty army in view. The savages fled in the utmost disorder, evacuated their towns, and reluctantly left their territory to our mercy. We immediately took possession of Old Kalakoth without opposition, being deserted by its inhabitants. We continued our pursuit through five towns on the Miami rivers, Old Kalakoth, Pekaway, New Kalakoth, Wills Towns, and Kalakoth, burnt them all to ashes, entirely destroyed their corn, and other fruits, and everywhere spread a scene of desolation in the country. In this expedition we took seven prisoners and five scalps, with the loss of only four men, two of whom were accidentally killed by our own army. This campaign in some measure damped the spirits of the Indians, and made them sensible of our superiority. Their connections were dissolved, their armies scattered, and a future invasion put entirely out of their power, yet they continued to practice mischief secretly upon the inhabitants, in the exposed parts of the country. In October following, a party made an excursion into that district called the Crab Orchard, and one of them, being advanced some distance before the others, boldly entered the house of a poor defenseless family, in which was only a negro man, a woman, and her children, terrified with the apprehensions of immediate death. The savage, perceiving their defenseless situation, without offering violence to the family attempted to captivate the negro, who, happily proved an overmatch for him, threw him on the ground, and, in the struggle, the mother of the children drew an axe from a corner of the cottage, and cut his head off, while her little daughter shut the door. The savages instantly... Talk about a domestic scene, huh? <laughs> yeah, this is getting pretty intense. The, the, the... Jesus. The savages instantly appeared, and applied their tomahawks to the door. An old rusty gun barrel, without a lock, lay in a corner, which the mother put through a small crevice, and the savages, perceiving it, fled. In the meantime, the alarm spread through the neighborhood, the armed men collected immediately, and pursued the ravagers into the wilderness. Thus Providence, by the means of this negro, saved the whole of the poor family from destruction. From that time, until the happy return of what? peace between the United States and... There's all, <laughs> all of American history is in that sentence, possibly. Yes. Thus Providence, by the means of this negro, saved the whole of the poor family from destruction. Jesus Christ. Like, yeah, it's so on the nose. Yeah, we're good. We're fine. Nothing nothing bad is going to happen here. <laughs> the, the Negro who we're not going to name. Just whatever. Just the yeah. Negro. The, it's like it's the foundation to build honestly, any nation, I think. It's the way, like, that's that's this hearth. That, the hearth of sort of Europe or English settlement is call, like referring to the Negro like the vacuum cleaner or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Like, just, uh, okay. Thus Providence, by the means of this Negro, saved the whole of the poor family from destruction. From that time, until the happy return of peace between the United States and Great Britain, the Indians did us no mischief. Finding the great king beyond the water disappointed in his expectations, and conscious of the importance of the long knife, and their own wretchedness, some of the nations immediately desired peace, to which, at present, they seem universally disposed, and are sending ambassadors to General Clark, at the falls of the Ohio, with the minutes of their councils, a specimen of which, in the minutes of the Piankasho Council, 
is subjoined. To conclude, I can now say that I have verified the saying of an old Indian who signed C.O.L. Henderson's deed. Taking me by the hand, at the delivery thereof, brother, says he, we have given you a fine land, but I believe you will have much trouble in settling it my footsteps have often been marked with blood, and therefore I can truly subscribe to its original name. It's like a republic if you can keep it. <laughs> um. Oh my god, yeah, exactly. Two darling sons, and a brother, have I lost by savage hands, which have also taken from me forty valuable horses, and abundance of cattle. Many dark and sleepless nights have I been a companion for owls, separated from the cheerful society of men, scorched by the summer's sun, and pinched by the winter's cold, an instrument ordained to settle the wilderness. But now the scene is changed, peace crowns the sylvan shade. I, that, an instrument ordained to settle the wilderness, like it'd be, I would have loved to have heard the conversation between Boone and Filson about that line particularly. Like, yeah. how much are you conscious of literally the role that you play? Yeah, and like how I think, when what was the year this was written again? Uh, Eighty four. Eighty four. So you're about. It's not too long, but you're about forty years away from coining "manifest destiny," the phrase. But there it is, right there in print. I mean, if you want to talk about like the milieu that that concept came out of, it's stuff like this, like that little sentence. Like, may it's interesting to think about, like you said, like between Filson and Boone, you could see that as being like, written off as like that's a nice way to end the paragraph. But yeah. the amount of weight that's going to have for the first generation of, you know, Americans proper and the first generation of American writers is going to be Titanic. Right. Um, yeah, this was, yep, 1784. And uh, Filson was eventually uh, killed by uh, Native Americans, I believe. Let me just make sure that's true. Oh, yeah. Well, on a survey and expedition to the Great Miami River, he disappeared in 1788 when the party was attacked by Shawnees. His body was never found. Uh, interesting. What thanks, what ardent and ceaseless thanks are due to that all superintending providence which has turned the cruel war into peace, brought order out of confusion, made the fierce savages placid, and turned away their hostile weapons from our country. <laughs> May the same almighty goodness banish the accursed monster, war, from all lands, with her hated associates, rapid and insatiable ambition. Let peace descending from her native heaven, bid her olive spring amidst the joyful nations, and plenty, in league with commerce, scatter blessings from her copious hand. If we that could actually, is like, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, you start. I mean, that, yeah, this, uh, you know, we were, we had flagged it earlier, all this like biblical language, particularly like in the King James cadence. And it's like, after detailing absolutely horrendous atrocities, and then to just switch into this kind of like Elijah pro- prophet cadence of like, isn't war awful? Is yeah, like- it's, like a, it's like, it's like, it's like now that the natives are gone, we need to get rid of war. It's like you, the war is there. Cause you got rid of like, <laughs> yeah, it's you buddy. Like yeah, you're talking exactly. about yourself on this one. And it's just, it's just weird to like, or it's not, it's just, it is a little like sickening a little, like even with this, like this big a distance of time to be like, uh, you really think you have me fooled as a reader, don't you? Like with this yeah. kind of sleight of hand that it's like, oh, war is hell. I hate that exactly. we're always looking for it. <laughs> this account of my adventures will inform the reader of the most remarkable events of this country. I now live in peace and safety, enjoying the sweets of liberty and the bounties of providence with my once fellow sufferers in this delightful country, which I have seen purchased with a vast expense of blood and treasure, delighting in the prospect of its being, in a short time, one of the most opulent and powerful states on the continent of North America, which, with the love and gratitude, of my countrymen, I esteem a sufficient reward for all my toil and dangers. Fayette County, Kentucky. Daniel Boone. So, I mean, incredible ending there um, yeah. with the lies. Like, right? Because, okay, let's just get right to it. 
Um, here is a section from the Morgan on debt and taxes, right? Like the, so the, I guess the logic of this, just to state it reductively is, yeah, you might've lost your first two sons in brutal warfare that mm. like makes you sad to this day. But think of those bounties. Think of all those like think of all those fruits growing off the trees, right? Think of all those fields that you can just plow and make. Now that the natives have been uh, pacified, right? Yeah. You're just going to enjoy. It. But the, what was the reality, right? Because because the idea is you get to own that. Then come back, come out to Kentucky. You get to own this too. And even Daniel Boone, no, that's not how it works. Here is uh, this is from chapter. I'm not sure what chapter is, but this is from the uh, Robert Morgan uh, Boone biography here uh, on that dynamic. Throughout the 1780s, Boone got deeper and deeper in debt, as he had to sell off land at dirt-cheap prices just to pay his taxes. And he became embroiled in ever more lawsuits, mostly brought against him. He rarely went to court himself. Between 1786 and 1789, he was involved in at least 10 lawsuits. He was sued for his contested surveys, lost titles, signatures on others' debts. So basically, yeah, he'd survey land and wasn't, um, which was not much of a science at this point. And no. uh, even if you're trying to do it honestly. And his whole dealing with like, if somebody sued him, it'd be like, fine, you win. <laughs> and just kind of like move on. Uh, mm-hmm. He like didn't kind of like to fight it. Um and so, yeah, immediately in legal issues, because that's that's how he, he had to uh, continue making money. Boone sometimes found it difficult to collect his fees for surveying. On July 17, 1785, he wrote a client, Nathaniel Rochester. Sir, I must be plain with you. I'm entirely out of cash and the chain men and markers must be paid on the spot. And I want two or three guineas for my own use. Sir. If you will send me six guineas by my little son, it shall be settled on our first meeting. Bye, sir, your humble servant, Daniel Boone. Historians, including Arthur K. Moore, have pointed out that heroes such as Boone were essential to the settlement of the frontier. But once the wilderness and Indians were gone, the society had little use for the men themselves. It was the legend that was important. It's painful to consider a man of Boone's talents and predilections enmeshed in such a labyrinth of debt, litigation, recrimination. Boone, the hunter and explorer, the scout and visionary, was now bogged down in chicanery and greed, debt and con men. In spite of his fame and earlier successes, he had sunk to the level of horse trader, and apparently even slave trader. The woodsman who had sought and loved the paradise of the wilderness, the Eden of Kentucky, had been swept along into the land boom with the worst of society. It's apparent that without wealth, breeding, and education, the backwoodsmen fitted little better than the Indians and varmints into such a setting, Arthur K. Moore observed. Boone went along with the new times, but he didn't change with the new age. He was still willing to divide what he had among his friends and associates, as he had back in his hunting days. Boone had failed himself, and by doing so had failed many others also. His debts were beginning to outrun his assets and income. Because of his Quaker upbringing, his respect for Indians, his peaceable nature, it's surprising that Boone accepted slavery so easily, 
owned slaves when he could afford them, and even traded in slaves. One would have thought that his experience as a captive of the Shawnees might have made him more sensitive to the issue of bondage, that his sense of fairness and honor would have led him to oppose slavery. It's a disturbing truth that even the best people tend to accept what they are familiar with, what they see practiced day after day around them. Daniel Drake, who was brought to Kentucky as a boy around this time, was a lifelong opponent of slavery in his career as a doctor. In his memoirs, he left an account of a neighbor in Kentucky that reminds us of the reality of slavery on the frontier. This man had a wife older and proportionably larger than himself, with two or three little children. He was very poor, and yet owned a Negro man in middle life, and a woman rather old, at least twice the age of himself. His treatment of both was cruel in the extreme. A single pair of the flimsiest Negro shoes was all the man got in the year, and the old woman was quite as miserably clothed. They were fed on stinted diet. Both worked in the field and were pushed under the whip to the extremest degree. Its use on the man didn't excite our feelings so much as that on the old woman. She had been his nurse in infancy, and yet he would tie her up, strip her back naked, and whip her with a cowhide till the blood would flow to her feet and her screams would reach our ears at the distance of more than 300 yards. So, I mean, that's a, it, it, interesting the way that these biographers tried to wrangle with um, the sort of, I guess, perceived... I, is, I, it, I, it must be just a surprise to their expected reader, because if you're really surprised that these folks couldn't overlook that sort of thing, I mean... I don't know. I like there's a very good book by Marcus Redeker called the uh, on Benjamin Lay. I don't know what the full title is, but it's about how even among Quakers, like it took a while for them to be anti-slavery and and uh, but. Or at least elaborate it publicly. There's probably it probably took some time, um, but they had some awareness that there was some sort of immorality to there. And Boone coming from Quakers, like he could have known better, but he didn't. And he, the way he talks about white people versus Negroes or native Americans, I think it's pretty clear. It's, it's not surprising to me at all <laughs> that this guy would be able to overlook that sort of stuff. Yeah. Or that, you know, probably the most likely scenario is he did probably at some level know better and did it anyways, which is what most people end up doing. Yes, and and uh, took the profit from it because uh, yeah. Boone, the Boones were um, not everybody that settled in Kentucky owned slaves. Uh, the Boones did. The Boones yeah. Boone uh, regularly traveled with slaves, and uh, that that's how they provided for the household. Um, so, yeah, let's just go a little bit more with that. Um, well, I think I think just one point touching on this thing about you know. He, he was someone of supreme use. And then all of a sudden was someone who was of no use to this mm. like colonial and then early national project. And that's a story that's going to keep happening. I think, especially in like the furnace of the 19th century where things are moving at such a rapid clip, these people rise and they just are like washed immediately. Like I think of like Custer is a great example of that. Someone who just yeah. couldn't be more necessary to the, uh, taming of the West. And then they're kind of like, uh, this guy's kind of, we, or they, at the same time that, um, the, uh, uh, 
sorry, the battle of uh, little bighorn is happening. They're like, Oh, instead of just confronting the Lakota directly, we could just starve them. And all of a sudden, like Custer's just kind of <laughs> hung out to dry and just goes out and dies. And they're like, great. We don't need to like, actually the American empire doesn't need to do this anymore. And meanwhile, he's like fixated on silver uh, mine claims, uh, yeah. right? And like trying to get his real big nest egg to like stop having to do this shit. And maybe he can go back into New York society uh, as yeah. a as a hero. Yeah, exactly. Here's where we get into. I think where we start getting to the hatred of Kentucky. <laughs> of course, we were greatly delighted when he left us because he was Colonel Daniel Boone, and because he knew the land better than anyone else, and because he was an official of Fayette County. Boone was called on to testify again and again in hearings and trials. Since someone lost in every suit, Boone came to be hated by many. After being the greatest hero of Kentucky in 1784, by the late 1780s, Boone was despised by scores of settlers for their losses and embarrassments. Rumors of the earlier accusations of his disloyalty still circulated. The descendants of Richard Calloway never tired of accusing Boone of treason in 1778. A number of times his life was threatened. His son Nathan later told Draper, In addition to premeditated personal injury, he felt he was a target for assassination. Nothing hurt his feelings as much as accusations of dishonesty. Boone was especially sensitive to slights upon his character in a place and time where such sensitivity was a liability. It's funny how sensitive he is. Yeah, and he eventually F's off to um, to Missouri. Uh, just got a couple more sections on this. Here's one from uh, Morgan on uh, on how he like never returned to Kentucky and really, uh, which is just, uh, again, just to contrast it with how Filson's Adventures of Daniel Boone and which is like, look at me enjoying the fruits of all of my labor and bounty bountiful peace uh it just it's just the the mendacity of colonial boosterism mm-hmm. and like i mean it's all this is this is the this is the most interesting thing to me like when i studied started started studying media um and uh, for instance uh the master's level at new york university i wasn't like i, I was i knew of i've I'd read marx I probably wouldn't have called myself a Marxist. I was just a general leftist, but like the way that capital perverts ideas as they're expressed through a publishing industry is just like, that's the main fucking ball game. <laughs> to be, yeah. As far, as far as I'm concerned. Property in which Boone hadn't paid taxes was being auctioned off. As one acquaintance put it, Boone was soured against Kentucky. Boone told Francis Bailey, an English traveler who met him in 1797, that people in Kentucky were got too proud, and that he was unwilling to live among men who were shackled in their habits. The rumors spread about Boone's business practices and surveying gave him an added incentive to leave Kentucky. Some of the accusations were remembered and embellished and passed on to John Dabney Shane. When Boone went out to the site to find the tree he had marked as the corner of the property, was said he couldn't find the entry, and leaving his company, made one and dirtied, rubbed, over the fresh marks so as to conceal the fraud. <laughs> Boone's trick was discovered, however, which disallowed the entry. Risk speculated that it was embarrassment over this matter that prompted Boone to move to Missouri. 
but another version of these events was given to Draper by Boone's nephew, Daniel Bryan. Boone's honor compelled him to pay up his bond as long as he owned an acre of land of Kentucky, and not able to satisfy all, he was harassed and pestered so much that he bade farewell to Kentucky. Right up to the end of his time in Kentucky, Boone was involved one way or another with land and surveying. As late as July 13, 1798, he had accompanied the deputy surveyor, John Ballinger, to Stinking Creek to survey one of his old campsites on the Warrior's Path. In the spring of 1799, Boone and his family began to prepare for the removal to... That's uh, the last one we'll do there. And then I also want to include, unless you have a comment there, just one final one from the uh, John MacFarriger uh, bio. Um, and on this also treatment. So like this, again, like the main theme that any biographer of Boone hits is how much those final paragraphs of Filson's adventures of Colonel Daniel Boone are not <laughs> are realistic. Mm-hmm. Alone now, says the boy, and he presses the old man to tell the story. You shall have it, honey, says Boone, who has taken a fancy to him, and proceeds to tell of killing a ten-foot hairy giant he called a Yahoo. The Yahoos were giant beasts in human shape from Boone's favorite book, Gulliver's Travels. It was a tall tale that Boone repeated to a number of people during his last year, one such as he would have told in a winter camp. Unlike Audubon's account, this story is laced with convincing detail, including authentic insight into his character and habits. But it runs against the assertion of nearly all members of his family that Boone never returned to Kentucky after his removal in 1799. His Kentucky kin frequently wrote asking him to visit, but the old man firmly declined each invitation because, as his niece Sarah Hunter put it, he was greatly insulted with the Kentuckians. Boone told a visiting grandson in 1815 that he had never been back to Kentucky, and five years later, just a few weeks before his death, he told a nephew that he had kept his vow to never again set foot in the state that had treated him so badly. <laughs> I remember his remark, Joseph Bryan wrote years later, for, although a boy, I felt ashamed for my state. I have felt it ever since. The daughter of the merchant, Jacob Boone, who lived her whole life in Limestone, declared that old Boone never once visited her family there. Despite the romance of the stories of Peck, Audubon, and the others, said Nathan, the truth was that his father had never gone back to Kentucky. Nevertheless, family traditions all agree that one of Boone's principal concerns during these years was to clear all of his accounts. According to Nathan, after the announcement of Boone's congressional confirmation in the papers, several Kentuckians with claims against Boone hastened to Missouri to press their demands, and he paid them all. The tale was told that after all of these men are satisfied and Boone thinks he is finally clear, yet another Kentuckian arrives with a claim. He is the husband of a woman to whom years before Boone had given a generous gift of land after her parents were killed by Indians. But like many Kentucky tracts, her land proves to be shingled over with other claims, and she eventually loses it in a lawsuit. I insist you make good the loss, her husband demands. Stunned, Boone replies that he gave it purely out of charity, not obligation, that it cost her nothing. But the fellow continues to press for his pound of flesh, and Boone finally gives him the verbal heave-ho in his characteristically droll way. You have come a great distance to suck a bull, says he, and I reckon you will have to go home dry. Yeah, so... <laughs> It's nice to see he's also kind of like an archetypal, archetypal like crank American that has s- steep regional hatreds, <laughs> like certain places being like, it's not just the place. It's not just the fact that I owe them a lot of money. The people fucking suck also. <laughs> so no, I'm not going back there. It's such a like, it's something to look forward to, honestly, as a, someone who's suffered with being in America my whole life, that I know that some, I can just be this old man living out somewhere being like, no, I'm not going to Indiana, like, or just some, <laughs> just choose some place to hate. Yeah, I mean, he's his hatreds are great. I mean, the um, there's t- when he's in Missouri, 
um, he's living on the Missouri River. He gets passed by the Lewis and Clark expedition, actually. Um, but there's there's talk of like he'll see people coming, and it because he's famous, he'll go out the back door with his cane and try to avoid them. <laughs> Be like he's out. Uh, and yeah, I love that curmudgeonliness. Like you, uh, you, um, you come a long way to suck a bull, and I'm dry. And there's another thing where he's he's like one of his daughters was rumored to be a, a prostitute yeah. and uh he said uh well trot mom trot father what do you accept what do you expect a pacing mare which is kind of <laughs> just a nasty nasty guy <laughs> just nasty exactly i mean you you see why they were that the victorian era biographers were uneasy with him just being okay with his brother knocking his wife up um yeah. Uh, but, and I think that that's, what's so interesting to me is to find like the real Boone who, again, like you see the way people, uh, they, uh, especially like liberals on Twitter will, uh, make fun of the uh, idea of economic insecurity. And it's like, here's another slaver, just, uh, uh, not at the scale of William Byrd, but I have really made use of slave labor. Um, and, but also because it was within this wider uh, uh, sort of financial nexus where powerful people get to tell you what to do and uh, and you're doing everything ultimately for them and they author uh, when you go and what you're doing it for. And that he, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's really, that this is an important, I think, lesson for Americans to know. The, re- the reality versus the myth of Daniel Boone and how it, it really like I do. I think you do see it in a sort of like rise and grind culture, right? Like, like instead of in nature, it's just like I got uh, turned down by this many uh, people for my entrepreneur business, but I kept going with it, right? And it's just like, mm-hmm. man. Well, I think yeah, I, I totally agree, and I think you know, often people reach that level of like you know archetypal status. It's often for reasons in spite of themselves, but makes it no less valuable to like learn about them. Like he is a unique individual that's worth learning, uh, not necessarily for the ideas that he would want you to, you know, or like even the people that were his boosters. And I think it's, you know, it, I don't know, it's, it's difficult because I, I read this person and it's just so fascinating, like the, the contradictions in the world that he lives in. You know, it's not just pure snide, like, oh, it's actually bullshit or whatever. It's actually when you uncover these things, it's not to debunk it so much as to, f- to show the, like the layers of complexity that's going on with this person that yes, there is such a thing as like this kind of rugged individual, but what com- like makes it complex uh, or complexifies it is that the rugged individual uh, has underwriters and <laughs> those people uh, have interests that have nothing to do with him, that they're just waiting until he's done. And then they're going to cash that check and he's out on his own and he's on yep. his ass. And I think that's a very important lesson because it's going to happen a lot in this country and still happens today. And he'll have authored the destruction yeah. of what he loved in mm-hmm. life and lived to have seen it in a way that he doesn't want to set foot in it again. Like yeah. that to, from hearing about it at Braddock's defeat, this Edenic paradise where preachers were saying it's like, it's better than heaven. And to, I can't go back there because it's all fucking lawyers and uh, degenerates and people I owe money to. Yeah. 
And then to like, he like, we won't get into his Missouri stuff, but just suffice to say the Spanish crown entices him to Missouri with some promises. He, he he's like a little district judge for a little <laughs> bit and uh, dispenses justice. Like, and then Napoleon gets uh, uh, France and then or, uh, Louisiana. And then it goes to the Americans and the Americans are like, Hey, there's this clause that says, you had to build some shit and you haven't. Uh, so this is ours now. And a lot of like the subsequent stuff is him lobbying and him, his relatives lobbying about his significance to the legislature saying, this guy is significant. The wilderness road is important. Like we said, it ultimately led to where like the, uh, the 200,000 settlers into Kentucky, the white settlers that would uh, a Lincoln would come from. Um, he's significant. And also fucking in debt, can we help him out a little bit? And yeah. that's that's a major impetus for why he is continually um, uh, offering you know uh, information to people like Philson. Yeah, I mean the last the last recourse he has is celebrity in some yeah. early form or another. And again, that's another thing. That's another thing we can put the uh, you can jot that down for like that's going to uh, return more than once that theme that theme and variation of like person who does x y and z uh does an incredible like you see like this like bonanza right behind them and then they're left with nothing so they have to rely on some form of like celebrity or like cultural figure basically absolutely well because i think uh we've pretty much uh covered it here yeah um folks thank you so much uh we'll have i don't know where we're gonna go after this i've i've been i've been getting in super into to john milton also been getting super into uh Shakespeare and uh ever heard of him and, guys and and the Bible. So uh <laughs> I've, had, I've, had, I've had a lot of fix uh yeah, a lot of um uh I don't know what you would call them, canonical uh fixations lately. So um we'll see what comes up next. We'll see uh, I'm not sure where we're going. Maybe we do just do Gulliver or Aeropagitic or something like that. But uh until next time, Alex, thank you so much and thank you, Grace, uh also. Yeah, thank you.